Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuned into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Villisca, Iowa. So finally, after all this time, you could put away your scorecards and stop trying to memorize this cast of characters as we bring the story of the drama in Villisca to an end. We begin the final three episodes of our twisted tale, Murdered in Their Beds. After the jury failed to convict Reverend Kelly of murder, Attorney General Horace Havner had a dilemma on his hands. He knew that the chances of convicting Kelly in a second trial were virtually non-existent, but on the other hand, he had brazenly and foolishly told the newspapers that he was so convinced of Kelly's guilt that he would try him eight times if he had to, once for each of the victims. So now, like Frank Jones in his slander case, he was bound by his word to continue pursuing a lost cause. A second trial would be a waste of both time and money, but Havner and Favell truly believed that Kelly was the killer. They had an obligation to continue their pursuit of the little minister, as he was known. If Kelly was released and he killed again, the blood of his new victims would be on their hands. At the same time, another drama had been unfolding during the trial about which Havner was unaware. However, it would result in another violent death, and the consequences of it would lead to the final series of bitter confrontations between Havner and the devious former Burns detective, James Wilkerson. Around the time that the Kelly trial had been starting in late summer of 1917, John Warren Knoll's life was coming apart at the seams. You remember Noel, right? He was the photographer whose studio had caught fire in Frank Jones's building, creating animosity between the two men. Thanks to that, he became tight with James Wilkerson. Noel had then offered questionable testimony during the Jones slander trial, claiming he'd overheard the former senator talking about the Moore Stillinger murders and plotting to kill James Wilkerson. Yeah, that guy. So by the summer of 1917, Noel had serious problems. No one, not even his wife, knew at the time how serious those problems were. He kept it all very secret. That summer, Noel bought a new Oldsmobile, causing people to wonder where he got the money to pay for it. He was far from wealthy, and his photography business was in jeopardy, thanks to his devotion to Wilkerson and the constant distractions that kept him away from his studio. He was a vocal fundraiser for the detective and had attended nearly all the meetings that Wilkerson held, working the crowds and soliciting contributions and pledges. When he was on the road, he paid for his own food and lodging. With no earnings coming in, he started borrowing, using his photography equipment as collateral. Within days after the end of the first Kelly trial, the sheriff and the county attorney were looking into allegations that Noel had written a number of forged checks. Apparently, some of the people who had pledged money to Wilkerson's cause, or at least in Noel's mind had made a commitment, failed to pay. So Noel decided to rectify the matter by writing their checks for them. 
And that was only part of the problem. Businessmen who had loaned him money that was secured by his studio equipment found out that he had actually sold most of that equipment to raise funds, something that was illegal. Worse yet, some of Wilkerson's henchmen had a growing suspicion that Knoll had not turned in a sizable portion of the money that he'd been collecting at fundraisers. Knoll would soon be found with a bullet in his head, but things were going to get even stranger before that. During the Kelly trial, James Wilkerson had kept a low profile, probably at the defense team's request, but on the day after the verdict was returned, he held a public meeting at one of his favorite spots, the Beardsley Theater in Red Oak. The meeting was to be the first step in raising funds for Kelly's second trial, or at least that's what he said. Wilkerson again criticized Havner, telling the attendees that the attorney general would be up for re-election the next year, and when the voters saw his name on the ballot, they should remember the slogan, Slay Utterly. A petition was passed demanding Havner's resignation. It didn't name Jones, but it charged Havner with associating and consulting with, quote, a man whom the public has reason to believe was implicated in the Villisca murders. Juror Tom Brown also came under fire at the meeting. The man who hung the jury had literally, overnight, become a very unpopular figure in the community. Brown attempted to redeem himself by speaking to the newspapers. He told them that he'd been unfairly accused of being good friends with Frank Jones, but this was not true. He hardly knew the man and spoken to him only once in the 10 years before the trial. Brown stated that he went into the trial with an open mind and that having found the confession believable was convinced of Kelly's guilt and simply could not in good conscience vote any other way. Of course, none of that mattered to Wilkerson fanatics who became enraged all over again as the second trial approached, blaming Brown for the fact that, well, it was taking place at all. In October 1917, the Villisca National Bank made a brief announcement. Frank Jones, after a 22-year career that saw his advance from teller to cashier to president, was stepping down and ending his association with the establishment. His stock in the Villisca Bank was being sold and his longtime friend and bank vice president, Burt Deerham, was replacing him. Jones was 62 years old by this time, in excellent health, and had no plans to retire. Under other circumstances, he would have continued at the bank indefinitely. But the specter of suspicion that was created and fueled by James Wilkerson, month after month and year after year, had ruined his political career and now was hurting the bank as well. Jones wanted to do what was best for the bank, and stepping down seemed to be that right thing to do. Using the proceeds from the sale of his stock, Jones bought a farm on the north edge of Villisca, and he and Albert went into business raising hogs. Jones continued to manage the implement store, but he did this mostly from his office at home. Albert and Dona moved out to the new farm, where Albert began spending his days with the livestock rather than at the store. Frank and Albert had stopped being the high-profile figures they once were. It just seemed best to go about life as quietly and as carefully as they could. The day for Kelly's retrial was set for November. The minister had higher hopes for the second trial, and he was certainly in better spirits. He'd grown accustomed to life in jail, and his new friends in Montgomery County supplied him with a canary for company, as well as a typewriter and a supply of paper on which he could write his life story. Reporters who visited him in jail said that he was able to use the corridor outside of his cell, making his living arrangement more like a small apartment than a jail lockup. 
As his canary sang, Kelly told the newswriters that he hoped to publish his autobiography after he was acquitted. For the odd little preacher who spent most of his career living hand to mouth and traveling from one church position to another, living in jail was probably better than the outside world. Wilkerson was doing whatever he could to ensure that Kelly was acquitted the second time around. He continued his fundraisers and he was scheduled to speak at one on a cool, wet night in the nearby town of Nottoway. John Knoll planned to be there, and before leaving, he called John Montgomery, Sarah Moore's father, and offered to give him a ride. Montgomery had not been as vocal as most of Wilkerson's supporters, but he was a steady worker and had provided a sizable amount of money to the cause. His only goal was to live long enough to see his daughter's and his grandchildren's killer brought to justice. He attended a number of Wilkerson's meetings and occasionally spoke, always briefly and always eloquently. He agreed to go along with Noel that night. Noel, driving his new Oldsmobile 8, picked up Montgomery at his far north of Villisca around 6 p.m. They first drove to the railroad depot in town where Noel said they might meet Wilkerson and save him from riding the last few miles to Nottoway on the train. Wilkerson wasn't there, so Noel said he would probably be on the next train and he and Montgomery left. They traveled east on the old Nottoway Road, a former wagon trail that intersected with the railroad and the East Nottoway River about two miles outside of Villisca. Both the road and the tracks ran in a straight line, crossing each other about one half mile west of the river. West of the overpass, the road went over and the railroad went around, a steep rise known as Boots Hill, named for a farmer who'd once lived there. From the top of the hill, there was a sweeping view of the railroad, the overpass, and the river bridges. Now, there's a reason I'm giving you a travel log. Hold on. It was starting to get dark when Nolan Montgomery reached the hill. As they started down the east side, they saw a light that, as it got closer, appeared to be on the railroad tracks between the overpass and the river bridge. Noel wondered if someone might be injured. Now, why he would think this, it's hard to say. He stopped the car, climbed the fence along the tracks, and went to investigate as Montgomery waited in the car. He said Noel went only a short distance before coming back to get a flashlight. This time, he asked Montgomery to come along, and the older man followed him over the fence and down to the tracks where he'd seen the light. Suddenly, Noel saw, or claimed to see, two men running away from them. He gave chase, taking a 32 caliber revolver from his coat and firing off two shots. In a statement later given by Noel and Montgomery, they said that they found a wooden railroad tie chained to the tracks and worked quickly to remove it before the train carrying James Wilkerson came through. Noel told Montgomery then and others later that he was sure they had ruined a plot to derail the train into Nottoway for the purpose of killing Wilkerson. After removing the chain of the wooden tie, Nolan Montgomery drove into Nottoway and told the station agent what had occurred. Other authorities were contacted, including Sheriff Dunn, railroad detectives, and a work crew from Villisca. They went out to the scene to investigate and found a log chain by the tracks, as well as several discarded railroad ties, but little else to suggest that the incident that Nolan Montgomery reported had taken place. There was a general skepticism about the story, which increased when Noel began almost immediately to suggest he should be eligible for a reward for averting a train wreck. 
A number of people who knew Noel told railroad detectives that he'd been acting strangely, and it's likely that Sheriff Dunn told them about the photographer's deepening financial problems. If Noel had been alone that night, it would have been easy to pass the whole thing off as a hoax, perpetrated by the photographer to make him look like a hero, and more importantly, earn him a reward. It would have also been a great publicity stunt for Wilkerson, allowing him to prove that he was really in danger, as he so often claimed to be. It would also have given credence to Knowles' claim that he overheard Jones threaten the detective's life in 1916. Knowles had been on hand and was ready to testify at Kelly's trial, but Judge Boise wouldn't allow it. With a new judge, he hoped to take the stand in the second trial. The only thing that gave credence to Knowles' story was the presence of John Montgomery. The farmer was a respected citizen and a longtime resident of the area with a reputation for honesty. He initially swore that the events had occurred. People who knew Montgomery found it difficult to believe that he would go along with the story if it wasn't the truth. Well, regardless of John Montgomery's claims, railroad detectives were convinced that Knoll had engineered the whole thing just to get a reward. When they questioned him and brought up his financial problems, Knoll became jittery and agitated. He knew about the sheriff's investigation into the forged checks, but he denied making up anything about the railroad incident. Soon after, Wilkerson's top cronies confronted him about the missing money from the fundraisers. Knoll's house of cards was getting ready to collapse. Desperate, he sold his car, then went to the insurance company and told them it had been stolen. They refused to pay, and he didn't pursue it. A week or so later, he went to an insurance agent in Red Oak and tried to take out an additional life insurance policy on himself. He was denied a new policy because he was already heavily insured. He was then carrying a $32,000 policy for life insurance, the equivalent of his anticipated salary for the next 25 to 30 years. The policy had a 12-month suicide exemption, but it had been in effect for more than a year. That's an important thing to remember. On Wednesday, October 31st, Noel hired a driver to take him to Nottaway. The driver later said that Noel seemed to be in a fine mood and told him he was going by train to Corning. At the depot in Nottaway, Noel mailed a special delivery letter to his wife. He then took the train to Corning, where he had a short and unremarkable conversation with an acquaintance, then boarded another train and continued traveling east. He stopped at the railroad office in Creston and asked about the investigation of the Nottaway incident and was told that it was completed and was now being reviewed to see what actions were appropriate. He got back onto the train and continued on to Albia. There were later unconfirmed reports from this leg of the trip that said Noel was seen drinking whiskey straight from a bottle. If Noel had traveled straight through, he would have arrived in Albia early that evening. He didn't, though, making his next few hours a mystery. At 7 a.m. the next morning, he was found on the platform of the freight depot with a 32 caliber bullet in his head. The bullet had entered just behind his right ear and had exited the upper part of the left side of his head, lodging in the wall of the depot building. The revolver was beside him and his wallet, which contained $29, was lying on the platform a few feet away. When he was found, he was unconscious, but still alive. He was rushed to the Albia Hospital, where he died later that morning. Before receiving word of her husband's death, May Knoll had gotten a letter that he had mailed to her before getting onto the train. May, a pretty young woman with three small children, one an infant, was stunned by the letter. She had supported her husband in the work that he did for Wilkerson, and she was unaware of his recent legal and financial difficulties. The letter was later submitted at the coroner's inquest, and it read, and hang on because this is a mess. My dear wife... 
I am in the hands of some men who said they were railroad men. They got me on the train and they said they wanted me to take a trip with them. I don't know where they are going to take me, and I know that I'm in a bad bunch as they are bad men, and I am afraid something is going to happen. I don't know who any of them are, but they have threatened to kill me if I didn't keep my mouth shut and go with them where they wanted me to. That was all one sentence, by the way. They are watching me now, but if I can get this to a porter and slip him a dollar, he will mail this for me. I hope that I get back to you all right, but I'm afraid that they know that I have got money on me. Keep that to yourself about that money that I got. If this is a railroad bunch, they may use that to get me into trouble on. I know. It, it, I know. Just one more paragraph. I have always tried to do the best I could for you, little girl, and oh God, if I only had the last two years of my life to live over. If I shouldn't get back, try to raise our dear baby as best you can. I wish I could tell you what a condition I am in, but I can't explain it. I've been working for about three hours to get this wrote, and maybe this will work out all right. Anyway, if you get this letter, don't worry until you hear from me. I'm going to try and get another slip in this letter for you alone to read and then hide or destroy, but keep it to yourself. They must have gone back on me or else somebody else is putting us to a job. They think that I have done something crooked, but I have not. With all my love to you and my dear father and mother and babes. Even in this farewell letter, Noel couldn't help but lie and create drama where none existed. Less than an hour after the letter arrived, May received a telephone call from the hospital in Albia, telling her that her husband was critically wounded. Noel's mother accompanied her on the next train, but he was dead before they made it to the hospital. John Warren Noel was only 27 years old. The coroner's jury hearing testimony about his financial problems, his legal issues, the letter to his wife, and the opinion of the attending physician ruled his death a suicide. But of course, Wilkerson publicly stated this was not the case. It was a murder, he said, another in a series of violent deaths that could be traced back to the slaughter of the Moore family and the cover-up that followed. Wilkerson and his supporters claimed that Noel had received threatening black hand letters, threatening retaliation against him for having testified against Jones. They pointed out that Noel's wallet was found several feet from his body. Why would a man about to commit suicide take out his wallet and toss it? They also made much of the fact that he'd been shot in the right side of the head while the gun was found next to his body on the left side. There was also the insurance policy that he applied for shortly before his death. It had a one-year suicide clause, so why apply for it if he planned to kill himself a few days later? They failed to explain this reasoning since Noel was, well, turned down for the policy. They also failed to account for Noel's final hours, but insisted that he had not taken the trip to Albia to kill himself. Someone had followed him there, taken his gun away, and killed him with it. There's no question that Noel's death was mysterious. What had become of him between Creston and Albia, a trip that only should have taken a couple of hours? Why was his body not found until the next morning? Why had he taken such an unusual trip just to kill himself outside of a freight depot? There are a lot of unanswered questions about his death, so it's no surprise that his friends questioned everything about it, including whether it was suicide or not. Within a few days of Noel's death, John Montgomery, not surprisingly, had second thoughts about sticking to his version of events about the night on the way to Nottaway. He went to the authorities and told them that in the excitement of the moment with Noel shouting and firing his revolver, he'd allowed his imagination to convince him that things were as Noel claimed that night. He hadn't actually seen anyone running away, wasn't sure about the light that Noel claimed to have seen. 
and had not actually seen the railroad tie on the tracks. Montgomery apologized, saying that he had not meant to give a false statement, but he'd allowed himself to be taken in by Noel. Well, this seemed to close the book on the investigation of the incident and on Noel's death as well. No matter what Wilkerson and his friends might say, another blemish on Noel's reputation convinced everyone that he had taken his own life, even if he hadn't. He had certainly not been killed by one of these so-called Velisca conspirators. If John Warren Knoll did not commit suicide that Halloween night, I'm afraid that the reasons behind a possible murder would have less to do with the slaughter in Villisca and more to do with the trouble that the young man had managed to get himself into all on his own. Meanwhile, James Wilkerson was dealing with his own lingering problem, the grand jury hearing about the attempted break-in at the Jones store that we talked about in the last episode. Three confessions and several witnesses left little doubt as to the facts behind the break-in attempt, but the grand jury inexplicably refused to indict Wilkerson. They listened patiently as the prosecutor presented the case, called witnesses, and took them through the events, but they would not indict the detective. It's thought that perhaps the trial simply did not belong in Adams County. If the account of the events leading up to the break-in was accurate, Wilkerson conspired in not just Adams County, but in Cass, probably in Pottawatomie, certainly in Montgomery, and the case was delivered in Union County. The Adams County Grand Jury just didn't want the responsibility for it. Trials involving Wilkerson tended to be expensive, and the jurors had no interest in bearing the cost. Somehow, the wily detective had one more victory. But of course, Wilkerson was not the only one dealing with a court case. Reverend Kelly was a different man when he came to Red Oak in early November for his second trial. Gone was the morose, weird little man. He'd been replaced by a fellow who was animated and smiling during jury selection, which went better than the first time around. There were 140 jurors questioned for the first trial, and there would have been even more if both sides had not exhausted their assigned number of strikes. The second time, though, it only took two days and 88 people to put together a new jury. After they were seated, Judge Arthur had a lecture prepared for them and for Tom Brown, the holdout from the first trial, who was a spectator in the first row of the gallery. The jury was told they were expected to get along, to communicate, resolve their differences, and to treat each other with respect. The judge told them that when they cast their ballots, the majority was usually right. And the greater the majority, the more likely they were of being right. He was letting them know there would be no 11 to 1 hung juries this time around. I'm pretty sure this isn't legal to tell juries that, but... Hey, I'm I'm not an attorney. Anyway, to the onlookers in the courtroom, the judge was even more blunt. There would be no one more time warnings. He required complete silence from the spectators, and anyone who violated that rule would be escorted from the courtroom. He also posted an officer at the door with directions that no one would be allowed to enter or leave except when the court was in recess. Judge Arthur was determined to keep tighter control over the proceedings that Judge Boise had, and he did so. 
It was a comparatively short, orderly trial, but in fairness to Boise, the audience was neither as large nor as emotional as it had been the first time around. The case and the participants had been on the front pages for too long. The need to get a glimpse of those involved had largely been satisfied, and it was a general opinion that the outcome of the trial was not even in doubt. There was no jockeying for seats in the courtroom this time around. In fact, on many days, empty chairs were scattered throughout the gallery. The trial was shortened even more when the state decided not to use the controversial confession. The prosecutors had debated this at length, mostly feeling that the confession had been turned against them in the first trial. Its use had created sympathy for Kelly and made Havner look like a brutal interrogator. On the other hand, the one juror who believed Kelly was guilty said that he felt this way because of the minister's horrible admission. In the end, Havner decided not to use it. He and Favell still needed a miracle, and he wasn't sure the confession could produce it. The opening arguments were essentially shortened versions of the ones from the first trial. The trial produced only a handful of new witnesses. The state did use some evidence that had left out the first time, including a reading of the letters that Kelly had written to the Council Bluffs woman whom he wanted to pose nude for him. When the first letter was written, it was turned over to the postal authorities and they answered it, pretending to be the young woman, acting interested. It was the start of a lurid exchange as Kelly's letters quickly progressed to graphic depictions of sexual acts. The letters were read out loud to the jury during the second trial. Many watched Laura Kelly closely during the readings, and while the minister made faces and squirmed at his chair, his wife listened calmly, showing no emotion at all. The state offered an additional witness who swore he'd heard Kelly talk about the murders on Monday morning, and another witness, W.H. Fulwider of Winter, South Dakota, an auto dealer who lived in Winter while Kelly was there. Fulwider said that he had once driven Kelly to another town for a sermon or lecture, and during the drive, Kelly spoke at length about the murders, claiming that he was tracing a man who took a bloody shirt to a laundry in Council Bluffs. He knew who the shirt belonged to, he said, and when the authorities found him, they'd have their guilty man. The other witnesses for the state were the same ones from the first trial. Lawyers on both sides repeated the same questions they'd asked before. A few new ones were attempted, but no new information was gained. Closing arguments, except for the fact that the confession wasn't mentioned, were nearly identical. Jury selection for the trial had started on November 12th, and the case went to the jury on the afternoon of Saturday, November 24th. In less than five hours, with only one ballot, Reverend Kelly was acquitted. The still creepy little minister was finally a free man. During the trial, Kelly had said he expected to stay in the area and finish his autobiography, regain his strength, and enjoy the company of his many new friends, but he didn't stay long. His so-called friends didn't stay friendly after he had outlived his usefulness. He was just too strange to want to spend much time around. Kelly moved to Omaha within a few weeks. He delivered a few new lectures, but he didn't stay long there either. He and Laura left less than three months after they arrived, telling friends they were going to Boston and then back to England. Something changed his mind, though, because a few months later he was in Chicago, writing to people he knew in Montgomery County and asking them for money. He needed it, he told them, so he could hire attorneys to sue the state of Iowa for false arrest. The lawsuit was filed but dismissed soon after, and Kelly officially vanished into history. 
It was said that Kelly eventually returned to England, and many years later, some of the Anarson children, with whom Kelly had stayed before the events in Villisca and the mother, stayed up all night guarding the children because Kelly freaked her out so much, claimed that Kelly wrote to their father and asked him for money to help him return to the United States. The Anarsons ignored the letters, but many believe that Kelly managed to return anyway. It's been said that he lived in Kansas City, Connecticut, and New York, but the remaining years of his life and his final resting place are a mystery. Another minister, a legitimate one in our story, Reverend Wesley Ewing, passed away on March 24, 1918. He was in a hospital in Des Moines recovering from a minor nose operation when he suddenly died. He was a well-liked, albeit notorious man, known not only for being the pastor for the Moore family, but for his hosting of Reverend Kelly and his advocacy of Wilkerson and his crusade. His presence had given a degree of respectability to the often rancor-filled public meetings. His surgery was thought to be successful, but something went wrong and his heart stopped, suddenly ending his life. In the wake of Kelly's second trial, James Wilkerson stayed on in Montgomery County, becoming an official resident. Until the trial ended, and perhaps for some time after, he was drawn from the funds raised to defend Kelly and continue the investigation, but the account was quickly depleted. Since Kelly had been acquitted, new cash would be difficult to raise. He'd lost his position with the Burns Agency months before, and he was no longer interested in continuing his career as a private detective. Wilkerson was unable to live on contributions any longer. He needed a job and a regular source of income, and to achieve it, he came up with a new plan he would run for the position of county attorney. Now, Wilkerson had practiced law in Texas, and he certainly knew his way around a courtroom. In addition, he was also one of the best-known and most eccentrically popular figures in the county. He announced his candidacy, which was a typically brazen thing for him to do. He'd been criticizing local law enforcement officials for years, calling them incompetent and criminal and making a general nuisance of himself. Now he was running for the top law enforcement job in the county and doing so knowing full well that he did not meet the minimum qualification that required a county attorney to be a member of the Iowa Bar. Wilkerson was not licensed to practice law in Iowa, and to do so, he had to deal with the attorney general, knowing that Havner would fight him to the end. But Wilkerson also knew the final decision on his admittance rested with the Iowa Supreme Court, and he must have believed they had a fighting chance with them. He sent in the nomination papers, applied to the bar, and prepared for the battle to come. In April, Wilkerson filed his request for admission to the bar. Havner, knowing it was coming, filed an objection, offering seven reasons why Wilkerson should be refused, including that he would not maintain proper respect for the courts, that he was guilty of acts that showed he was not of good moral character, that he was guilty of acts that showed he would seek to mislead judges, that he would encourage the commencement or continuance of actions from motives of passion or interest, that he had violated court orders, that he'd been guilty of acts of moral turpitude while a resident of Iowa, and that he had been guilty of willful violation of the duties of an attorney. The seven reasons reasons were made public, and the voters had to wonder about Havner's comments concerning moral turpitude and his moral character. They were soon going to learn a lot more about Wilkerson and his moral character, but for the upcoming primaries, Wilkerson went on the attack. He started a new series of public meetings during which he began attacking his opponent, 
Oscar Winstron. Unfortunately, Winstron wasn't offering much of a fight. He let it be known that the ongoing war in Europe and military service were on his mind. He did end up running in the primary, but whether he'd actually return to office was in doubt. Other candidates had declared, but none of them were experienced like Winstron or well-known like Wilkerson. The former detective went straight to the people, promising real law enforcement and investigations that were free of influence from people with powerful connections like Horace Havner and, of course, Frank Jones. Wilkerson campaigned vigorously, quickly becoming the frontrunner. It seemed as though it would be an easy victory, but then Montgomery County election officials dealt him what should have been a fatal blow. Candidates had to fill out a form that requested, among other things, that the candidate attest that he is eligible to hold office. Wilkerson had drawn a line through those words and wrote in, would be eligible, and then checked the box. Based on this, officials debated about whether his name could legally appear on the ballot. Because he had not yet been admitted to the bar, the decision was made that he was not going to be permitted to run. But Wilkerson never let anything as superficial as a legal ruling stand in his way. Once again, he cried foul, claiming the powers that be were out to get him. He again went to the people, stepped up his public meetings, cried out against corruption in high places, and appealed for write-in votes. As the June primaries approached, Horace Havner began putting together an operation that was designed to destroy any chance that Wilkerson had of practicing law in Iowa. Frank Jones, not surprisingly, was doing all he could to help. Over the years, Jones had gathered quite a lot of information about Wilkerson, most of which he'd not been able to use. He paid for a lot of the information gathered by detectives, but even more of it came from people who read about his persecution by the former detective and wrote or called to tell them what they knew about Wilkerson and his methods. Jones had piles of information locked in his safe, including affidavits on the Nellie Byers murder, the Blue Island murders, and other cases that Wilkerson had worked. There were also documents about his association with Jack Boyd, and a lengthy file on Wilkerson's previous divorces and marital status, including the fact that he'd been living in Villisca for a time with a woman who was not his wife. To Jones, the election was important. He despised Wilkerson for what he'd done to him, believed him to be a devious, immoral, and unworthy person of holding political office. In addition, it's plainly obvious as to why Jones would not want Wilkerson holding a law enforcement position in Montgomery County. Once in office, his persecution of Jones would never end. Jones wanted Wilkerson brought down, and he did everything he could to make it happen. Eventually, it did happen, but it was not Frank Jones or Horace Havner who brought about his ruin. It was May Knoll the widow of Wilkerson supporter John Warren Knoll. But we'll get to that in a moment. Havner took the information that Jones gave him and included it in the material that he submitted to the Iowa Supreme Court. He also used the state agents that had been assigned to his office. The supervisor of these agents, who worked general criminal investigations and special assignments, was Oscar Rock, who answered directly to the attorney general. Rocket spent considerable time on the Velisca case and probably wanted Wilkerson as badly as his boss did. He did some traveling that spring to look into the former detective's background. It wasn't long before Rock and his men began hearing about what Wilkerson was up to. As a candidate and applicant to the state bar, Wilkerson was supposed to follow a different set of rules than he had as a detective, but he was either unaware of it or, more likely, just didn't care. In gathering what turned out to be a huge file for the Iowa Supreme Court, Havner took a series of affidavits from farmers and businessmen who could attest to Wilkerson's activities either during his investigation or during his campaign for office. 
The witnesses spoke of the way that he divided the county into hostile factions, that he used fraudulent and unfair means during his public meetings, and had denounced the courts, the officers of the courts, and the state officials of Iowa. During his 1918 campaign, the affidavit stated that he had, quote, openly and publicly advised Democrats to call for Republican ballots and vote the Republican ticket for him without further advising them that it would be improper and unlawful for them to do so unless they changed their party affiliation. Well, the affidavits went on and on, accusing Wilkerson of damaging the credibility of the primary election, polarizing the county, inciting terrorism, whoa, and even defaming the Farmers National Bank in Red Oak. Exactly what the bank had done to anger Wilkerson wasn't reported, but one of the bank's directors was present during a campaign speech and attested that the former detective had advised his audience to pull their money out of the bank because the president and the active manager were dishonest and were embezzling the money that they had entrusted to them. The affidavits were collected by Havner to be presented to the court, and it's unlikely that most voters were even aware of them as they prepared to cast their ballots. Even if they had known about them, it's unlikely that many would have cared. These were mostly old charges that had been leveled at Wilkerson for years, and those who believed in him were fiercely loyal and turned a blind eye to his lies and manipulations. This was made plain by the vote. In one of the last elections in which women were not allowed to vote, the men of Montgomery County came out strongly for Wilkerson. There were 987 voters who wrote in his name on the ballot for the position of county attorney, while Winston came in second with 790 votes. Wilkerson even received enough write-in votes on Democratic ballots to win the nomination for that party, too, along with three write-in votes for sheriff, one for county recorder, and one for clerk. It was a huge victory for Wilkerson in his Slay Utterly campaign against state officials, and it captured the public's attention. While the state as a whole would eventually re-elect Horace Havner, he lost by a substantial margin in Montgomery County. As the dust settled from the primary, it was clear that Frank Jones's fears were justified. If Wilkerson won the general election and after the primary, it was assumed he would, he knew that Wilkerson would be absolutely committed to charging him with eight counts of murder. With county resources and a grand jury at his disposal, Wilkerson would undoubtedly resume his attempt to put Frank Jones on trial. After the Kelly indictment, it seemed that the Jones family was finally safe from Wilkerson, but the primary elections of 1918 sent a stab of terror into the heart of Frank Jones. The Iowa Supreme Court moved forward in the process to make a decision about Wilkerson's application, designating Oscar Winstrom as the commissioner to take depositions on the court's behalf. Winstrom began hearing testimony in mid-June, getting details about Wilkerson's fundraising efforts, his defiance of court orders, and his ongoing 100 questions. Winstrom wanted to show the court that Wilkerson had been retained by the county to investigate the murders and then sought and accepted employment with the Citizens Investigating Committee and Association Wilkerson took the lead in forming. The committee was also used to raise funds to defend Reverend Kelly. For someone to receive county money to investigate the murders while also raising funds to defend someone accused of the crimes was, in the opinion of Havner and Winston, highly unethical. Witnesses produced records showing the inflammatory nature of Wilkerson's speeches and his derogatory remarks about the attorney general and other officials. Now, while it seems a little unethical to have Wilkerson's political opponent conducting the investigation, 
I suppose no one cared when it came to getting rid of the troublesome former detective. Wilkerson was allowed to cross-examine all the witnesses. When speaking to those who testified on his behalf, he used every chance he could to make them state for the record over and over again that Wilkerson wanted nothing more than truth and justice for everyone, for the guilty to be punished and for everyone to know that he was even-handed, fair, and honest in his dealings. Wilkerson asked questions which were designed to bring Horace Havner's conduct into question, but the hearing wasn't about the attorney general, and Wilkerson knew it. But just as he'd always done, he blamed everyone else for his problems and tried to deflect negative attention away from himself and onto those he felt were conspiring against him. Havner, who was also at the hearing, objected to nearly every question asked by Wilkerson. The validity of the questions would have to be determined by the court, but Havner just wanted to make sure that his objections were made for the record. It finally got to the point that Havner's objections became so repetitive that he merely signaled the court reporter to note on the record each time he objected. He was trying to wear down the court with the objections. He did this not only verbally and with his hand signals to the court reporter, but with his piles of documents. He dumped statements and court records from Kansas, Missouri, and Texas on them, along with the transcripts of the entire 1917 grand jury inquiry. The clerk who weighed the box containing the massive accumulation of paperwork stated that it weighed 49 pounds, but all of this would soon be irrelevant. Right after the hearing, while the court was still deciding if Wilkerson could officially run in the election, Havner's agents finally caught up with him and finished off the detective for good. They found Wilkerson in a darkened hotel room with May Knoll and arrested him for adultery. It was Wilkerson's final reckless mistake and one from which he would never recover. Even though it could be argued that no one knew exactly what was going on in the hotel room that night, the arrest itself was actually pretty straightforward. One fact known for certain was that May Knoll had received $32,000 in insurance benefits as a result of her husband's death a few months before. She said that she had traveled to Albia and Atumna to loan her brother-in-law $1,600. She had the cash and was prepared to make the loan, but wanted her husband's trusted friend, James Wilkerson, to accompany her on the trip to advise her about collateral and repayment. She made arrangements for her two older children to be cared for in Villisca, but took the 14-month-old baby along with her. The three traveled by train to Albia and spent part of the day on business there before boarding a train for Atumna that evening. It was dark and close to 11 p.m. when they arrived. The first hotel they stopped at did not have suitable accommodation, so Wilkerson and May, carrying the baby, walked down the street to the Fraser Hotel. Wilkerson asked for adjoining rooms, one for May and the child and the other for himself. He registered under the name L.R. Johnson of Centerville and signed in May and the baby as Mrs. N. Norton and baby of Albia. Two state agents, W.A. Potter and H.W. Terrell, had seen them enter the hotel. The officers had been working the Wilkerson case for several weeks and in addition to investigating his movements, followed him all over the region. They trailed the trio through town, secured a room across the hall from Wilkerson's adjoining rooms, and summoned a third agent, L.A. Fisher. Terrell moved a table to the door of his darkened room and stood on it, watching through the glass transom over the door. Shortly after arriving, Wilkerson called the bellman to his room and then sent him out to buy two bottles of near beer, a non-alcoholic beverage that tasted like beer. Wilkerson drank one and then a few minutes later went to May Knoll's room. He was only there for a few minutes before leaving the hotel and returning later with some fruit. Wilkerson dropped off the fruit in May's room and then returned to his own room. Moments later, when he stepped back into the hall, he was wearing only a nightshirt. 
As an undoubtedly delighted agent Terrell watched, Wilkerson went back into May's room. The agents hurried over to the door and one of them pressed his ear against it. The baby fussed for a few minutes and then grew quiet. The lights were turned off and Terrell's report stated that the agents could then hear the sound of creaking bed springs, which was enough to convince them of what was going on inside. The agents had already identified themselves to the desk clerk and informed him that a crime of carnal nature was in progress. The clerk went to the door, knocked, and asked for Mr. Johnson. There was a short delay before Wilkerson, wearing the nightshirt, opened the door of May's room. The agents pushed their way inside, the desk clerk right behind them, and turned on the lights. May Knoll was in bed, wearing a green robe, her face turned away from the men. The agents identified themselves, called Wilkerson by name, and placed him under arrest. He was taken to his room where he was allowed to dress and then was taken to jail. He was released the next morning after posting a $300 bond. The charge against him was adultery, a felony in Iowa at the time, for which he could face as much as three years in prison. At the preliminary hearing, Wilkerson's defense stated that the charge was not in the information filed. This may or may not have been a mistake. The agents originally charged adultery, but after talking to Havner, it was amended to conspiracy to commit adultery, which they felt was more appropriate. The original charge was dismissed, and Wilkerson and May were immediately rearrested on the conspiracy charge. There was a scuffle when Terrell made the arrest, and he and Wilkerson nearly came to blows. Needless to say, it's James Wilkerson after all, there was a dispute about what had happened. Terrell said Wilkerson resisted arrest, and Wilkerson claimed the state agent mishandled and practically assaulted him. Wilkerson quickly announced that he'd been framed. State agents had been trailing him for weeks, he said, hoping to get something on him, which is why he'd registered under a false name. The baby had been sick and crying, and he'd simply gone to May's room to help try and quiet the child. There was nothing inappropriate taking place. He'd simply been sitting on the edge of the bed rocking the baby, which explained the creaking bed springs. The story didn't convince anyone, since May had no explanation for why she was in her nightclothes or why the lights were turned off. Wilkerson didn't have an excuse for those things either or why if he believed that state agents were following him and trying to frame him he would place himself in such a compromising position it's true that Havner had state agents following Wilkerson Frank Jones had his detectives trailing him too it's possible that Jones suspected a relationship existed between Wilkerson and May found out about the trip to Albia and tipped off Havner who made sure his agents were in place but the agents reports well they didn't admit this They claimed they had been working on a bootlegging case and just happened to be near the depot when Wilkerson and May came in on the train. Atumna was a rough town at the time. It was home to several packing plants and industries and attracted more than its share of bootleggers and prostitutes. The reports filed by the agents at the time showed they had been working in Atumna for several nights before Wilkerson arrived. There's nothing to indicate that these particular agents were looking for Wilkerson, at least in the report. And at the trial, they maintained they were not. But they said they recognized him and knew that Havner and Rock had him in their sights. Terrell had also seen the former detective with Mrs. Wilkerson and knew that the woman with him wasn't his wife. The trial would not be held for months, but the news made it to Montgomery County within days of the arrest. One by one, Wilkerson's supporters abandoned him. The thought of the 52-year-old married former detective romancing the young widow of a man who'd been loyal to him was repulsive to everyone. Wilkerson denied everything, but his denials were dismissed in face of the cold, hard facts that emerged about that night. There had been rumors about Wilkerson and women in the past, including some of his witnesses, like Vena Tompkins. He spent hours 
hours with her, and she confided things to him that she told no one else. And of course, there was Alice Willard, a woman of questionable reputation, who took overnight trips with him to Sioux City, Carbon, and Missouri Valley. The stories were merely gossip, rumors, and suspicion. You know, just like the whispers about Dona Jones and J.B. Moore. But to many, the incident with May Knoll suddenly made those stories a bit more believable. Even those who had voted for Wilkerson in the primary turned against him. At a county convention, a petition was filed by 18 delegates that stated that Wilkerson was not qualified to be the party's nominee and therefore should be ruled ineligible. The petition did not mention his arrest, but it was undoubtedly filed because of it. It stated a true fact. Wilkerson had not been admitted to the bar at the time of the primary election, so he should not have been able to run. That meant the write-in votes that had been cast for him were invalid and so could not be counted at all. It was a contentious meeting, but this time Wilkerson was outnumbered, and he no longer had the vocal support that he'd once had. Wilkerson was allowed to defend himself at the meeting and was his usual arrogant and insulting self. He demanded to know if the will of a handful of complainers was superior to the will of the people who he maintained wanted him to take office. His argument fell flat. The convention voted 96 to 25 against Wilkerson. A note was entered in the record that said, quote, that in view of events that have occurred in this county and elsewhere, it would be a disgrace to the county, to the state, and to the legal profession to permit one J.N. Wilkerson to occupy any position of public trust. The incident in Atomney was never mentioned in the public documents or in the debates, but it was never far out of the committee members' minds. Wilkerson had finally suffered a serious defeat. He'd been given a taste of his own medicine, and he didn't like it. He had to face the fact he would not be able to run for county attorney, and there was nothing he could do about it. No public meetings, threats, or innuendos were going to change the public's mind. There were other things he could do, however, and after exploring his options, he filed a $195,000 slander lawsuit in early September and named 33 men who provided affidavits against him to the state Supreme Court. But like Frank Jones's ill-advised slander suit, it earned him nothing. He never filed the necessary papers, and it was eventually dismissed. Wilkerson was in Villisca on Christmas Day, 1918, a day which marked an odd last encounter with Frank Jones. Wilkerson's purpose in town that day is unknown, but he may have been there to visit May Knoll. Charges against May had been dismissed, and she would be among the witnesses who would testify for the defense at the adultery trial that, after several delays, was set to begin in January 1919. When Wilkerson saw Jones on the street that Christmas day, the man he hated so much was on his way to the city bakery. Wilkerson approached him and spoke. No one knows what was said, but an argument ensued. Frank turned away and went into the bakery. Wilkerson followed, and there were more harsh words. Angry, Frank drew back his foot and kicked Wilkerson in the leg. He could have struck him in a number of ways, or or worse, he could have shot him since he was often carrying a revolver in his pocket. Instead, Frank chose to kick the detective like a dog. A farmer named R.E. Gilmore was in the bakery, and he stepped between the two of them. Jones turned in disgust and walked out. Wilkerson watched him go and started to follow, but Gilmore grabbed the former detective by the arm and told him it was over. The two of them watched as Frank Jones disappeared down the street. 
The adultery trial was just as nasty as one might imagine. Havner would have been wise to drop the case and save himself the trouble and the taxpayers the expense because there was little to be gained from it. Havner had been re-elected and Wilkerson was now as politically ruined as his nemesis, Frank Jones. His support was gone. He couldn't raise any further money for the investigation and his chance to gain admission to the bar was gone. A conviction in the case would be hard to come by and even if the state won, it was unlikely that Wilkerson would face any real penalty. Havner was kicking him when he was already down, hoping to put him away for good with a felony on his record and the public snickering behind his back about how he went into Mrs. Knoll's hotel room in his nightshirt to, quote, help her with the baby. The preliminary motions would have been amusing if they hadn't been so pointless. The defense filed a motion that conspiracy to commit adultery was not actually a crime. The act either took place or it didn't. The law, they argued, was to punish people who committed adultery, not those who thought about it. If that was illegal, then half the state would be in jail. Havner, who was prosecuting the case himself, disagreed and produced past cases to support that a conspiracy to commit a crime was still a crime. The judge agreed and the case moved to trial. Wilkerson was just as aggressive in his defense as he'd always been. He started the trial by petitioning the judge for a bodyguard, claiming that his life was in danger. He specifically pointed out Agent Terrell, who was on hand to testify, saying that Terrell had assaulted him and he feared for his life. The judge said that he really didn't think there was a need for concern, but assigned an officer to watch over him during the trial anyway. The prosecution presented its case in one day, relying on the testimony of the agents and the hotel employees. The defense, well, it was just as brief. May Knoll's doctor testified that she had recovered from measles a short time before the trip with Wilkerson and was likely still in a weakened condition, I guess making her too weak to make the bed springs squeak in the way the prosecution was suggesting. I don't know. He also said that the baby was coming down with measles around the same time, which is why he'd been so fussy. Bank papers confirmed that the trip did have a legitimate business purpose. Wilkerson didn't testify, but May did. She said she was feeling frail and exhausted when they arrived in Atumna and that Wilkerson had carried both of their bags and the baby to the hotel. She said that the baby had cried and Wilkerson heard it from his room next door and offered to help. He had, she said, gone out for fruit, helped her while she fed the baby, and finally got the child to sleep. Nothing else had occurred, she said. There were no advances by Wilkerson and nothing that would be considered inappropriate. Mrs. Wilkerson, the detective's wife, watched her testimony while seated in the courtroom, but what she may have been thinking about the incident is unknown. Understandably, the jury largely rejected the case. The idea of someone actually being charged with conspiracy to commit adultery likely sounded far-fetched to them. The jurors were uncomfortable with the idea of state agents lurking outside of hotel rooms listening for creaking bed springs. They began their deliberations with a ballot of 10 to 2 for acquittal, soon moved to 11 to 1, but got no further. As with the Kelly trial, there was one holdout and there was no convincing him. They debated for 46 hours and gave up. The jury was hung and Havner wisely chose not to try the case again. James Wilkerson was finally finished. He never returned to detective work. He apparently also made no further attempts to run for office or to practice law. Instead, he purchased part interest in the mummified remains of an old man who claimed to be the real John Wilkes Booth. This is an odd story in itself. The body was that of an Oklahoma man named David E. George who claimed to be Booth. He had allegedly escaped from Washington after the Lincoln assassination with help from fellow conspirators who covered up the fact that he had not been killed. 
George died in 1903, but years earlier, when he believed he was dying from an illness, he confessed his identity to several people, including Finnis Bates, an attorney from Texas. After his death, a few newspapers carried the story about him claiming to be John Wilkes Booth. Bates, who was living in Memphis at the time, traveled to Enid, Oklahoma, where George had lived, to view the remains. He discovered that the body was that of the man who had told him that he was John Wilkes Booth several years earlier. The body was unclaimed for several years and remained on display at Peniman's Undertaking Parlor in Enid. Eventually, Finnis Bates purchased the mummified corpse and had it tested to try and prove it was really Booth. Oddly, when it was examined at the University of Chicago, researchers found a silver ring that had been lodged in the corpse's stomach cavity. Although badly tarnished, the initials JWB were etched into the ring. This discovery prompted Dr. Otto L. Schmidt, president of the Chicago Historical Society, to write, quote, I can safely say that we believe Booth's body is here in my office. Yeah, nobody believed it then either. Not really. The identity of the mummy was never accepted by mainstream historians, which is likely what got the attention of James Wilkerson. During the 1920s and 30s, Finnis Bates leased the mummy to Wilkerson and a carnival promoter who toured the country and charged 25 cents to view the assassin of President Abraham Lincoln. Wilkerson toured with the mummy and delivered lectures about the Lincoln assassination and why he believed it was the result of a conspiracy that reached into the highest levels of the government. In effect, it was Wilkerson's same old song, but sung to a different tune. The mummy was displayed until the early 1940s when Wilkerson's partner went bankrupt and moved to Idaho. He placed the mummy in a chair on his front porch and charged visitors a dime to take a look at it. Eventually, the mummy disappeared. It's rumored to be in a private collection somewhere, but really no one knows for sure. As for Wilkerson, he suffered a severe stroke in 1943 and never recovered. He died a year later, an old and broken man, haunted by the events of the past. As for the rest of the players in our Velisca drama, they all went on to lead lives of both tragedy and triumph. Horace Havner continued with his distinguished career. He worked on many important cases, including a series of school and church fires and an attempted bombing against the members of the Dutch Reformed Church in the New Sharon area. Members of the congregation were against the war, and as the war dragged on, resentment against them led to violence. After months of investigation, Havner and his agents made several arrests, and the agitators were successfully prosecuted. Hoping that the publicity he received for solving the Hollander fires would be beneficial, he ran for governor in 1920. He lost in the primaries and returned to private law practice in Marengo. Albert Jones settled into a quiet life after the stormy years of trials, accusations, and political intrigue. He farmed and spent time at the implement store until suffering a series of strokes in the early 1930s. He was an invalid for a time, but he eventually recovered enough to be able to walk downtown on his good days. He was happiest when at the farm store, talking and visiting with the staff and with old friends who stopped by. His recovery was short-lived, though, and after suffering another massive stroke in the summer of 1935, he became bedridden and unaware of his surroundings. Frank Jones was at his son's bedside on August 2, 1935, when Albert died. He was only 49 years old. Dona Jones later remarried and left Villisca for good. Frank's daughter, Letha, left Villisca shortly after the murders. 
She enrolled at Columbia University in New York and later taught at colleges in North Carolina and Florida. She eventually returned to New York and taught at the Maxwell Training School for Teachers. She spent many summers with her parents in Villisca and traveled to Europe with them. She inherited Frank's farm property and that, along with her retirement income, allowed her to live comfortably in New York until the end of her life. Letha never returned to live in Villisca again. She loved her family and her friends, but she never really forgave the townspeople for the fact that they were willing to believe the worst about her father, a man who had always done good things for the community. Letha died in New York on June 3, 1973. She's buried with her parents and her brother in the Velisca Cemetery. Frank Jones remained unbowed by the pressures that had been placed on him and by the destruction of his political career. He may have been pushed out of office, but his influence in the state of Iowa did not end. He had many friends and supporters, and for several years after his defeat in 1916, it was not unusual for politicians looking for endorsements, ideas, or furthering causes to write or call upon Frank Jones. He may have lost his political influence in Montgomery County, but he was still a man to listen to in Des Moines. He also continued to serve on the State Board of Education, filling a vacancy in 1915. He was later reappointed by the governor for a six-year term. His work on the Board of Education, by all accounts, was exemplary. As a fiscal conservative, he dealt with trimming expenses at the state universities and worked with educators to receive their appropriations. He attended and was honored at countless college graduation exercises and was present for many retirements and the induction of new university presidents. Long after his term on the board expired, he continued to get letters from those he had worked with, thanking him for his support and guidance. The attacks by Wilkerson took their toll on Frank. There was no question about that. His once wide circle of friends became considerably smaller, but those who knew him best remained fiercely loyal. He still taught Sunday school, still visited and dined with his friends, and still spent a lot of time at the store. But he never forgot that a significant segment of the community believed, or at least suspected, that he was a murderer. Many of them were suspicious about everything he did, and that suspicion never really went away. There were even rumors that Frank stayed so close to Albert's deathbed because he feared his son might offer some sort of confession about the murders. Some locals refused to see Frank as merely a loving parent, blinded by grief over the loss of his son. By the late 1920s, Frank's correspondence with politicians and educators had dwindled. He'd faded from the public eye, and perhaps that was for the best. He enjoyed traveling, and for the next decade, he and Maude took numerous extended trips. The depression affected his finances, and as the couple got older, they began staying home more, edging toward complete retirement. Finally, in 1937, he sold the implement business. He was now 81 years old, but still in good health. He self-published his memoirs in 1940 and wrote that he'd never taken a drink of liquor, did not use tobacco, had excellent hearing and eyesight, and had all but one of his own teeth. Around this time, he even planned his own funeral, making detailed notes of how he wanted the service to be conducted. Frank passed away in his sleep on February 6, 1941. There were many in Villisca who believed he took the secret of the more Stillinger murders to his grave. After his death, the contents of his study were donated to the Villisca Public Library. They would not be sorted out until 1968. There were letters, notes, and grand jury statements about the case, but no shocking secrets were ever found. Years later, a couple who purchased the Jones home discovered all of Albert's old diaries and papers in the attic. They destroyed them without letting anyone else read them, simply stating there was nothing relevant in them. Whether or not they held any answers to the Villisca murders will always remain a mystery. 
If Frank and Albert Jones were innocent of any involvement in the murders, and I believe they were, then they too became victims in one of the most horrible crimes in Iowa history. And for the most part, this brings our story to an end. It's a story of lives destroyed, broken, and lost, all swirling around a series of murders that have never been solved. The impact of eight of those murders, those in Villisca, is still being felt today. In that sense, that part of the story will never end. As with all of the cities where the Axeman's murders took place, the people of Villisca were never given the justice they deserved. The hatred that was fostered by the dispute between the pro-Jones and anti-Jones factions split the town, and it festered there for generations. Villisca, even today, has never gotten over it. Many of the residents would rather it was forgotten, but it refuses to go away. The murders still haunt the town, well, in more ways than one. And it will always be that way for a simple reason, because the killer, the Axeman, was never caught. This is the end of the history of the Velisca murders, but our story is not quite over yet. We'll be back in two weeks with a look at the many suspects in the Iowa murders and what I believe truly happened on the darkest night in Velisca's history. So keep your doors locked and the windows closed. The Axeman is still out there looking for his next victim. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language Better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? Yeah, yeah, right. So. <laughs> no, go ahead. 
Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in Season 3, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor, for our 50th episode. I know, our 50th episode. It's only, what, what have we been doing this, like two, a little over two years? Is that right? Honestly, I have no idea anymore. I, no, well, three seasons. So has it been three years? Um, no, I no. don't think a season can, it's a, not a whole year. I think a little so, over two years. Yeah, I think that's about right. We started in the spring of something. Yeah, because I'll get the, the <laughs> whatever it was, the Facebook notifications yeah, that say, yeah. and some of them are like, "Oh, Troy, like Troy Taylor, want to say like thanks? We have eight thousand downloads. It's total, you know." Yeah, and right now right. we're up to three hundred fifty thousand or something. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that's well, awesome. I remember. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Is is that's it was two little over two years, two and a half years ago. So yeah, well, cool. That is cool. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, uh, summer's coming to an end. Yeah, yeah. Like, really, I thought of it as being over like before our last like two episodes ago. It seemed yeah. like the end of summer to me. Right. So, well, they're closing the pool. In my uh-huh. apartment complex oh yeah, that's this weekend. This weekend. So, right. Right. It's like the official. Yeah. The that is really the official. Well, the, it's technically the Labor Day's technically the unofficial end, but sure. Now yeah. nobody's going to hear this till the next week, but at least they'll understand when we were recording it. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Cause that secret's already out. So. Yeah. They know, they know how this stuff goes down. <laughs> yeah. Doing sober September. I don't know if you know this every January. I, Oh, that's right. I drinking, forgot about that. And I'm going to do it again for September. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just yeah, turned yeah. 30 and I just want to see what happens. Oh yeah. And it's a short month. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's only 30 days, right? right? Yeah, so uh, we're yeah. going to see what happens. You yeah. Know, I think it's good to reset every yeah, now and then. Why not? Uh, clean my insides out yeah, a little bit, but it's August 31st today. Yeah. So <laughs> right. Let's right. Let's have some right. fun. Uh, speaking yeah. of having fun, we, uh, what stuff we got coming up? Well, we actually yesterday, which would have been August 30th, everybody will hear this, I think the seventh, I believe, but, uh, August 30th, I released the new updated revised edition of my book about the limp family, which of course we covered in season two, our haunted St. Louis season. And, uh, it's the story behind all four of those sold out evening with the limp family events this fall. Yeah. We sold out all of them. Um, so awesome. I've had a lot of people asking me if we're going to have any more. We will not have any this this fall. We've we've already filled every possible date we had, uh, but we will be having more next after the first of the year, um, and probably after our, sometime after our next episode between our next two episodes, we'll be posting our some of our spring events that are coming up, our winter events, and including dead of winter, all that kind of stuff. So all of that will be going up. And by the time you guys hear this, we will have already posted our lineup for the 24th annual Haunted America Conference. Um, and that you'll be able to go and check out that lineup at ghostconference.net. Um, I'm not going to talk about it now, but we'll talk about it again soon soon, you know, as we come into the last parts of the podcast, uh, because, you know, we only have these three episodes left in this season and we'll be done. I know so, it's yeah. exciting. Kind yeah, of, it is. It is. Oh, anyway, but as far as the limp book goes, the, uh, the new edition, um, it needed to be done because I had a lot of new, new material, new stories, uh, some new photos, new information, um, about the limp family and all of the hauntings and that kind of thing. So I wanted to get that out. This is actually the third edition of that book. Uh, but each time I've been able to add a, a lot of stuff, but this one's a, a lot different than the previous edition. So it has a lot of new information, even stuff we did not have on the podcast. Yeah. So and we've got a very special 
evening with the Lemp family coming up in March. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to wait on details on that, okay. but I'm going to tell you that it's, it's going to be, um, our, our regular evening with, with something extra added in a really big bonus thing. Um, and I don't want to talk about it yet, so we're going to have right. to hold off. We may, uh, we will maybe talk about that, um, in our next episode. We'll see. Okay. So, all do you right. Ever, do you ever get to the point where, uh, you get new information and you're just like, I yeah. don't, I don't want to do this book again. No, it's yeah. I mean, I did. And that's kind of how I felt about this. I mean, I had so much new stuff that it got exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it had only been a few little things, no, I would not have because it's kind of a hassle. Um, because April ended up taking back and redoing the, the cover and everything for oh, okay, it. So, cool. um, it's not just a, a little update. It's a big update. So there's a sure. lot, a lot of different stuff with this one, bunch of new chapters, all kinds of stuff. So that's why I, didn't mind so much. Got so. it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I look forward to checking that one yeah. out. Uh, we have a couple listener reviews. Um, oh, cool. The first thing I want to bring up is uh, our good friend, Mark Voorhees, who writes in all the time. Oh, yeah. He said, hey, uh, I think that one star positive review is gone. And sure, shit, we, <laughs> we looked and it's not there anymore. Well, it's it. I think it got updated. I think it did, yeah. too. I think he fixed I it. I need to go back and like listen to the episode and see exactly see, what it yeah. said. But I yeah. know we have one less yeah. one than we did before. <laughs> um, so thank you. And I also want to say that like, if people take the time to go fill out a review for our podcast, we, we really we appreciate shouldn't make it. fun of them so oh, much. We're not. No, it wasn't star. that it wasn't even making fun of them. I just thought it was funny because sure. it was a great review. As long as yeah. they know that. Um, and I'm but, not, we're not the only ones that happens to apparently. Right. I've heard it happens to some other people too. So, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for pointing that out and for updating that review. Uh, so this first one comes to us from, Alfiza67 um, says, uh, Hecking Great is the title. Oh, yeah. Says yeah. this podcast is one of the few that feel very insightful and detailed. The chemistry between these two is perfect. I disagree, but I thank you very <laughs> much for, for the review. We really appreciate Cody it. Cody talks too much. That was the, <laughs> one of our yes. reviews. Yes. <laughs> uh, the next, I disagree, but, you know. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, it's what makes it fun. You know, yeah. The next one is from uh, XLSM87. I don't know. Uh, History, True Crime, and Ghosts. I'm in. <laughs> uh, that was kind of my take on it, too. Uh, yeah. So I was late to the podcast listening game, but American Hauntings was the first I started listening to regularly. St. Louis episodes drew my attention initially, and I've been hooked ever since. I appreciate Appreciate Troy's fact-filled approach to storytelling, giving background on people and places to really humanize each episode. So thank you for that oh, review. Cool. Yeah, um, great. That's all great information, and we really appreciate that. And like I said, it really helps people find uh, find our podcast more easily. So thanks again. Hey, everyone, we have to take a quick break to listen to a word from our sponsors. So people are always coming up to me and saying, Cody, how do I listen to your podcast? I got this phone just to take pictures of ghosts and I don't I don't know what else to do with it. So I tell them you can check us out on Stitcher Premium. And right now you can get a free month trial by going to stitcherpremium.com and using the promo code hauntings. And if you're looking for some new true crime, and you can check out the True Crime Garage off the record, the latest project from True Crime Garage host Nick and the Captain. You join them each week as they revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date. This is a compilation of hidden treasures, a chance to dive deeper, discuss new theories and get updates on your favorite episodes of True Crime Garage. Or if you're looking for something a little different, comedian Chris Gethard's beautiful stories from anonymous people opens the phone line to one anonymous caller, and Chris can't hang up first no matter what. From shocking confessions and family secrets to philosophical discussions and shameless self-promotion, anything can and will happen. Stitcher Premium 
Premium also has new ad-free episodes of cult favorite My Favorite Murder and hit shows from the podcast network like Cults and Conspiracy Theories and my personal favorite podcast, How Did This Get Made? Plus thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes and archives, and hundreds of stand-up comedy albums for when you need a laugh. And of course, like I said, our show is also available every week with Stitcher Premium. To get a free trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code HAUNTINGS. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code HAUNTINGS. You ready to dive in? Sure. Yeah, I'm ready whenever you're ready. This was uh, another kind of long one. Yes. Uh, but it'll be our last long one uh, of this series. The others are going to be a little more normal length, the last couple. But there was a lot that still needed to be told to sort of wrap things up. But, you know, like kind of like I said at the beginning of the of the issue, this is um, pretty much the end that you can kind of stop trying to figure out who all these people <laughs> are yes. and keep track of them. Because I know that um, I've had some friends who listen regularly who tell me, Man, I felt like I needed to keep a chart I'm or t- a flow I, chart I literally or something. Do. I know there was a lot of people. That's why usually when I would bring somebody up from, I mean, I think I have tied up every loose end that we had left, you know, through the entire season yeah. in this episode, uh, because there were some people that we needed to come back that we had to talk about one last time. And, um, you know, you, you could put away your scorecard and your flow chart and that kind right. of thing, because we finally reached the end. Uh, so this kind of covers our history. But anyway, go, go ahead. I know you've got some stuff you want to talk about. You know, there's so, a, just a few yeah. things I yeah. jotted down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, OK, jury fails to convict Reverend Kelly of murder. Right. Right. Uh, ten, Attorney General Horace uh, Havner, I'm just going to call Havner from this point sure. on, uh, has a dilemma on his hands, and he tells the newspapers that he's so convinced of Kelly's guilt, he would try him eight times yeah. if he had to, once yeah. for each of the victims. This is not good. No, it's, it's you know, but he was convinced. Yeah. You know, you got to give him that. Um, he and Favel were convinced that it was you know, Kelly, who had committed the murders. And and again, I, as we talked about in the last episode, I don't want to get back into that again, but it's it's understandable why they would believe it, uh, because Kelly gave him every reason. Yeah, gave him every reason to. He confessed multiple times. He told a lot of people, you know, that he'd done it. And, you know, they brought back that witness. And I know we haven't got to that yet, but said that Kelly had told him he was driving him somewhere and said, oh, yeah, I'm looking for the guy that took the bloody shirt to the laundry. And that's the man. If the police find him, they'll have their man. And I thought, dummy, that's you, (laughs) you know. And so it was, you know, I can understand why they thought it was him. Mm -hmm. I really can. Yeah. I mean, this episode and the next one, just going through doing these outlines, you really start to get a sense um, that people just really wanted closure yeah, a lot of times. Ex- absolutely. And wanted to put this absolutely. to bed. Um, was completely understandable, yeah. you know, um, why they, they felt that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was a lot easier to believe it was Reverend Kelly who was a creep or Frank Jones because that they could wrap their head around that. Right. As you know, it, it wasn't the killer. boogeyman anymore. Yeah. It was, you know, it was Frank Jones, you right, know, right. which is why people still that live there still believe he was involved to this day. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, more than a hundred years later, they still believe it. It's crazy. And we'll, we'll dive into a sure. little bit more of that later. Uh, so bringing back uh, one of our old friends, John Warren, Noel was still having issues. If you remember, he uh, had the photography <laughs> studio burned down, right. uh, all that sort of thing. So he was writing bad checks for people that couldn't pay Wilkerson. <laughs> he was essentially like embezzling money too. Right, right. Right. Well, he was, he was, what he was doing is these people would, he would, it was a banking was a lot different back then. I mean, mm-hmm. they had like blank checks in places. So he would just go and, you know, it, it, they wouldn't have, you know, account numbers pre-printed on them. They were just oh, okay. drafts. So he would go, if, 
someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pledge one hundred dollars to the to the fund. And then they don't actually put in their money into the bucket. Um, he would go to their bank and write out a check for one hundred dollars to Wilkerson and put it in his account. The issue was is that he was also skimming off the top with the cash. Got it. And his, some of some of Wilkerson's kind of right hand guys figured this out. Um, Noel was was pretty close to the top. He was kind of like the uh, you know. Remember the the old uh, this is the only way I could compare it to, and this is going to sound dumb, but okay. you may remember the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, or it was a Warner Brothers cartoon, and there was the big bulldog named Spike, oh, and yeah. the little bulldog would follow him around, going, "Hey, Spike! Hey, Spike! Yeah, let's yeah, do yeah. that." That's kind of John Moore Knoll because he was a young guy. Too, yeah, right? he was, but he was you know really idolized. Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. And so he would, you know, he was doing everything. He was paying for his own travel, his own hotel rooms, his own food. None of that came out of the defense fund. It was because, you know, Wilkerson was already skimming that. Right, right. So he was paying for all his own stuff. And I know in situations like that, what happens is people start feeling like they're, they are justified in stealing because, well, you know, I, I've done all this to help Wilkerson, so it's okay if I take some of this money back. You know, I, I'm, I'm really making it so he can keep doing the investigation. So really, I probably deserve 20 bucks or so. And right. so that's, that's, I believe, is what he was doing. Uh, but he was so deep in debt mm -hmm. that, you know, he had gotten loans from businessmen in town. And when you say businessmen, I'm not sure exactly how that was working. Uh, I don't think the banks were loaning him any money because he didn't have enough collateral, but somebody had loaned him money based on his equipment in his studio. Okay. You know, I've got all this expensive equipment that I, you know, used to, because back then, if you had a photography studio in the early 1900s, you had big cameras, you had your own dark room, you had all this stuff. So it would add up to quite a bit of money. So he would borrow against it, but then was also selling off the equipment to other people mm -hmm. at the same time, which is illegal yeah. to do if you're taking out a legitimate loan. Um, and if you're getting money from a loan shark, they'll just break your kneecaps right. for doing that. But, you know, other people could press charges. So he was in a lot of trouble mm -hmm. and it was just getting worse and worse and worse until it finally comes to a boiling point. Right. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Happy ever so, after yeah, um, with yeah. him. We'll get back to that. Yeah. Uh, on the day that, that the jury dropped the Kelly verdict, Wilkerson holds a rally at that the movie theater place they always at the theater that he's always yeah, is that's always Beardsley. at. Um, the meeting was to be the first step in raising funds for Kelly's second trial, but he ends up like calling for Havner's resignation. And uh, that juror, Tom Brown, also comes under fire at the meeting for hanging the jury, right. essentially. And he, right. that guy tries to redeem himself by speaking rationally to the yeah. newspapers. It, it, he be, he didn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, he didn't believe it, and he had a good reason for. Well, he, I mean, he did believe, he didn't believe he was innocent. He believed he was guilty. He agreed with the prosecution. Yeah. And, um, as was his right, mm -hmm. you know, as was his right to do. And, you know, people accused him of being in, in, you know, somehow in cahoots with Frank Jones. And he's, I don't even know the I guy. I talked to the guy once. Yeah. 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 I don't even know the guy. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. So October, 1917, uh, Jones ends up stepping down from Villisca National Bank at the age of 62 Literally buys the farm and yeah. raises hogs with Albert. And right. the the date for Kelly's retrial was set for late November. And I just have to read this little part. It said, he'd grown accustomed to life in jail and his new <laughs> friends in Montgomery County had supplied him with a canary for company, as well as a typewriter and supply of paper on which to write his life story. 
or write dirty letters. Yeah, one or the other. this just seems so, like a, a fitting place for him. Just a yeah, weird guy. He, with he a needed bird. to be whether he committed the murders or not. He probably needed to be locked up. Yeah. So you know, um, that was probably a good spot for him. Right. And then we have this weird story where yeah. John Noel and John Montgomery Saramore's father, they ride together to hear Wilkerson speak in Nottaway, which sounds like the sleepiest little town. Yeah, ever. right, right. Um, and they basically they claim that they found two men like chaining a railroad tie to the, yeah. to the tracks in order to derail. Yeah. Kill, uh, kill Wilkerson. Right. Well, that was just more in Knowles. You yeah. know, his you know, he had that this served a double purpose. Um, it, he could he could present it so that his hero was in trouble. And that, you know, all of these stories that Wilkerson had told about how he was, his life was constantly in danger, this would make it true. Sure. Plus, you know, hey, I just stopped, uh, let's save the lives of everybody on that train. I should probably get a reward. Yep, yep. I mean, though, you know, I probably gave it more space than it needed in mm-hmm. the story, but I felt like it was important leading up to what happened, you mm-hmm. know, to him next. Right. Uh, because this was another great scheme of his that he that fell through, mm-hmm. you know, and people were already suspicious of him. He was already in trouble. And now this just made things worse. Right. But it, desperation had set in by this. Yeah. Point, well, at know? first I was wondering, I was like, OK, maybe something happened. But like Noel had hired some guys and then just brought Montgomery. So he had a credible witness. Well, he but just there's nothing, nothing. Well, happened, yeah, right? he ran out there by himself first. Sure. And that's when he said, oh, I saw, you know, some people running away and he started shooting at mm-hmm. them. Montgomery didn't see anything, but he went along because it was he he believed him. Right. You know, no reason not to believe him. And of course, you know, later he's like, oh, well, I didn't actually see anything. Sure. Yeah. OK, great. Right. So well, hell, he should have hired guys to actually be doing well, that. I think that. I think the whole point of taking John Montgomery along was because he was so well, well respected. Of course. And if it had just been Noel in the car by himself, nobody would have believed it. But because he had this credible witness mm-hmm. with him, people were, and he really wanted to take Wilkerson too, because of course he knew he Wilkerson tried, would yep. go along with he it. He tried to find yeah, him. Yeah. So, but, and that would have been even better if, in his mind. Right. In mine, it would have been much worse, but for most people that would be much better. Yes. Yes. So, uh, this is, I mean, sad story, but uh, especially for Halloween, uh, but no, yeah. does someone have no kind of spends a day riding trains around? Yeah, going, it's, going nobody places? really knows where he went. Yeah. I mean, that's the weird thing. He showed up in a couple of different places and then um, leaves to go to Albia and isn't seen till the next morning. Yeah. And we no one knows where he was overnight. You know, whether he was laying there because, of course, they couldn't. Again, we're going to get back to that. You know, there was no crime scene team to come mm-hmm. in and check the how long the body had been laying there. We don't know when he did it. The chances are he did it the night before and there just weren't any trains running that night through that particular station. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. So but I mean, he obviously, despite what Wilkerson and, and his friends said, he I mean, he committed suicide. Sure. He'd reached the end of the limit. I mean, he was at the end. There was nothing else he could do at this point. Right. And he was worth more as he already knew he was worth more dead than alive. Yeah. As far as his wife went. I mean, it could clear up all of the problems that they had with that life insurance policy. He tried to take out another one, mm-hmm. but when he found out that the one he already had for $32,000, which was a lot of money back sure. then, but that insurance policy he already had, he'd had it for more than a year. And the year, it had a year suicide clause on it. Yeah. So if he took out the policy in, let's say he took out the policy in January, as long as he didn't commit suicide during that calendar year, he was okay. But once you got past that calendar year, if he, pay, if he committed suicide, it would still pay off. Right. So my guess is that he maybe knew something bad was going to happen. But when he went in to take out another policy and found out that the other one was good, 
I think he just dropped that whole idea. Right. So it's like when you try to buy a gun and they make you wait three days. Yeah, or right. There's a not, good reason for that. To not do something drastic. Right. Exactly. I've never heard of the suicide thing before, yeah, though. Yeah. Um, that's it's interesting. But I would imagine since peop- someone said that they saw him and thought he'd been drinking, and I imagine if he disappeared and ended up killing himself, he was probably getting hammered somewhere. Oh, I'm sure he was. Well, somebody said they saw him drinking whiskey straight out of the bottle. Right. So I'm, uh, you know, it was he was just trying to get as drunk as he could, probably yeah. to work up the courage to pull the trigger. Right. Yeah. If you, you know. see some, if you see a man drinking whiskey straight from the bottle, it is not a good. It's day. not a good thing, right? No, it's not a <laughs> right, good day. Right. I mean, he sends a really weird letter to his wife. Yeah, it's very um, strange and poorly written. Yeah, so, that's kind of what I. Yeah, was I, I had to read this, and I, I warned everybody. Listen, this is, I'm just reading this as it's it's here, right? Because uh, it's not a it's not really well written. Mm-hmm. So, but there are, like you said, there are many unanswered questions about his death. So it's no surprise that his friends question everything about it, including whether or not it was a suicide. And, uh, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, within a few days, Montgomery says, okay, my imagination kind of ran away with me. Uh-huh. I didn't really see what Noel right. claimed. Right. And they kind of just put some of that stuff to bed. But now we have some more about Wilkerson and Kelly's second trial. So the grand jury refuses to indict Wilkerson over the break-in. What's going yeah, on with that? Well, that was, yeah, and I tried to make sense out of that. And my guess is that, you know, you'll remember that Havner put it into Adams County because he was trying to keep it out of the hands of people in any anybody in Montgomery County that yep. might be friends of his. He was trying to keep it away from them. So he moved it to another county. But because of all of the planning and the travel that had gone on in that break in, you know, like moving from one place to the next place to the next place. My guess is they just decided that wasn't good enough that, yeah, maybe he did plan it in Adams County. But you know, we're not going to take responsibility for this. Um, as I mentioned, you know, anything involving Wilkerson cost everybody yep, money. So my guess is they just didn't want any part of that and didn't want the hassle. Yeah. And and really the whole thing was a little weak anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, if they had caught him with well, I mean, they caught the other guys red handed, but nobody wanted to touch this yeah. story since they didn't actually get into the store or, or actually steal anything. I think that it, they just figured, why bother? He's like, so he fails he's, up. Man, all he's the time. like bulletproof. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's up the, until a point, well, as sure. it turns out. The but, more he you know. fucks up, the more people are just like, ah, all right, <laughs> I know. Just I know. Let it go. But he's, he's gradually, they're chipping away at him. Sure. You know, he's lost his job. He's lost, you know, there's nothing to investigate at this point. And, right. you know, things are just sort of falling apart for right. him. Well, yeah, well, we're going to find out. He's not done quite yet. No, not yet. Uh, Reverend Kelly, though, he said was a different man the second time around. And it only took two days and 88 people to put together a new jury, which is a lot faster than a lot faster than the last the time. last time. And the judge tells the judge tells the jury there's going to be no 11 to one hangups this time. And you, as I thought, too, you said this seems yeah, I, problematic. I don't think that I'm 99 percent sure this isn't legal right. to tell a jury that, you know, well, if you have any doubts, tough, yeah. you know, you're just going to have to whatever the majority says, you need to go along. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't think it works that way. No. But I guess at this point, the, the whole tr- the whole second trial was pointless. Sure. I mean, Havner had to do it to save face mm-hmm. because he said he was going to. It's it's and I I made the comparison of Frank Jones saying that if people don't stop talking about me, I'm going to sue them. Yep. So then he had to and which turned out to be, you know, a disaster. Right. And I wouldn't call this a disaster. I would just call it pointless. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing was pointless. I mean, they literally got up and did the same thing they did the last time with like a couple of different witnesses that really didn't amount to anything. Right. You know, I like to tell people before you make a crazy statement or decision, <laughs> go either work out or yeah. 
do something with a loved one yes. and clear your head first yeah. before yeah. making crazy. Yeah. I always choices. kind of try to make that suggestion to people who want to write something nasty on somebody's some post or review or something mm -hmm. on Facebook or whatever. Yep. Really, if you, you're going to write it, go back and read it before you post it yep. because chances are, I mean, there are times when I, I have days where uh, I will go through my entire friends list and start like correcting their grammar. And then I'm like, okay, stop doing that. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't post these. Don't, I mean, I will write it out and then go, okay, don't, don't yeah. do that. They, they know the difference between your and you are, yeah. but let's leave it alone. Sure. Um, and don't do it. Um, there's like a, writing somebody, letters and not somebody in a certain town and I'm not going to say what it is, but they're having a pumpkin fest thing at the end of October. Uh -huh. And they put up this beautiful poster from there. The visitors bureau people put up this really nice poster with a glaring typo on it. And uh -huh. I really want to put, you have a typo on your poster and, but I don't do it because people do that kind of stuff to me and mm -hmm. it just irritates me. Sure. So, um, there are things you don't catch with your posts sometimes, right. you know, and, uh, or you will typo something. I did that not very long ago, I was writing about the Chicago race riots and I put a wrong number. I put the number of people injured instead of the number of people killed. And I put the death rate much higher than it was supposed to be. And I found one person who very nicely said, Hey, I think you mixed up the numbers. Cause it was obvious once you read the article yeah. where I'd mixed it up and I fixed it. But before that, there had been like six people who had posted nasty comments. And it's like, why? Why? Yeah. Why did you need to do that? Yeah. You know, so anyway, that's my advice to everyone. And that should have been what Horace Havner did before he said I was going to try him eight times. Right. If I had to. But said so. he goes back to trial. Yes. Um, and so the, the like I said, judge tells the jury stuff problematic. Uh, seems to run kind of a tighter ship, but the trial isn't really as popular as the first mm -hmm. one. There's like empty seats. I think. That, yeah, that, anybody could have run a tighter ship on this one. Exactly. Lance Ito could have run a tighter ship on this one. So, <laughs> um, is there just wasn't much of anything going on. Right. So. And the trial was shortened even more when the state was like, "We're not going to use that confession. Yeah. It's too controversial. I think it kind of hurt us last time. Bringing a few new witnesses, but in less than five hours, only one ballot. Reverend Kelly is acquitted. He's a free man." He and his wife moved to Omaha, but don't stay there long. And they're like, we're going back to England, but somehow end up in Chicago. Yeah, for a while. Stay. I think, uh, you know, I don't know. He kind of just disappears after that. Mm -hmm. There's there's no way to track him after that. Um, I have heard stories that he was in Kansas City and Connecticut, New York, like right, I mentioned right. in, the, in the monologue. But um, where he finally ended up is is unknown, although the Anarson family did get a letter from him from England asking for money. Uh, to bring him back. And they were the last people that were going to give him money. Yeah. Um, Cause one of my favorite quotes of this entire series has been from the, the young Narson kid who said that Reverend Kelly was at, had given a sermon and it was the strangest sermon he'd ever heard. <laughs> and I thought that fits him to a T that yeah. sums everything up about Reverend Kelly. Right. Um, so they were not interested in having him back and I don't know what happened to him. We have no idea. So, I mean, I, guess I mean, and this good. was kind of the chapter of the story where we just sort of wrapped everything up. But right. I can't wrap up Reverend Kelly because I don't know what happened to him. Well, I mean, there are worse things that could have happened. For instance, Reverend uh, Wesley Ewing passed away from a bad nose job, essentially. Well, he was it was some kind of um, I think it was like a yeah, I think he was having some kind of like a like um, bad nosebleeds. Now mm -hmm. they can cauterize that. Right. but I don't think they could do it back then. And obviously he had problems with asthma and stuff. Remember, yep. they would always sleep outside and sure. stuff which doesn't seem better. But I guess it would be if you don't have like air conditioning and stuff, you know, think about the tuberculosis. Right. Stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, I think the anesthesia or something went wrong and his heart stopped during, I mean, remember, I mean, we are still talking about a hundred years right. ago and we're not talking about the same kind of surgery that, you know, we have now. Yeah. So it was um, a little more primitive and whatever the ether or chloroform or whatever they'd given him Bottle stopped his heart. Yeah. And he died, um, uh, which, you know, was regrettable mm-hmm. um, because like I said, he was the legitimate minister we right. have in our story, but you know, right. the way it goes. Well, you know, RIP. And then Wilkerson decides to run oh, for the man. position of County attorney is what I said earlier yeah. when he's not done yet. Yeah. So in April files formal request for admission to the bar, Hefner files an objection with seven points of yeah. why you should not let this man in. Yeah. Wilkerson goes in the attack. He started a new series of public meetings during which he began attacking his opponent, Oscar Winston. Poor Oscar. You know, the, the young guy who had just come into the county attorney's right. job. And he starts going after him because he's connected to Havner. And, you know, Winston really wasn't even sure he was going to run again. Yeah. Because he planned on, you know, he planned on getting involved with the military because we were still at war at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the armistice had not been signed. And as far as we knew, we were going to be at war again for a while. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't prepare for, you know, worry about what the election was going to be later. Right now we're dealing with the primaries That's and fair. he's like, okay, well, you know, I guess I'll, you know, I'll stay in, but I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, so if you're not going to go out and campaign, it puts you at the disadvantage. The other advantage that Wilkerson has is that everybody knew him. Yeah. You know, whether they knew much about him or not, he had this rabid support group. And when you don't have a candidate that you can rally around to oppose him, people don't go to the polls, you know, and plus it's just the primary. So they figured out, well, what the hell, let's not even bother. And so that's what happens when you don't vote. Mm -hmm. You get someone like Wilkerson in, you know, to, as your next candidate or, you would if he, you know, was legally allowed. He, he was, this was never a legitimate primary because he was never a legitimate candidate. Why do I feel like he almost got his way in there? Though? Yeah, he almost you know, did like, because people wrote him in, even though he had not been admitted to the bar. Well, you can't be the county attorney. And when he filled out the paperwork, you know, he put, well, I'm not exactly in the bar, but I will be. Okay. But that's like me saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly a rocket scientist, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm going to study. So go ahead and give me the job. You know, it's not, but we talked, we talked though about like failing up and stuff, but I can see where one time they're like, you know what, might as well just change this wording. Cause so he can just go to his thing. I I feel like he could have gone. I know he, he could have, if not for what happened next, yeah, he could have he could have ended up with the job, right? If he had been admitted to the bar, but right. by the time the real election came around, I guarantee Havner had buried the Supreme Court in so many problems that I don't think he ever would have gotten in. Yeah, well, so, thankfully so. So, yeah. like you mentioned, Jones and Havner, they want Wilkerson brought down. Eventually, he was, but not by either of those people. No, it was, but uh, they were working on it for a while. They were, but it, it was someone else, uh, May Knoll, uh, the right. widow of Wilkerson supporter, John Warren Knoll. So let's get into this downfall a little bit. Uh, Havner <laughs> yeah. gathers a bunch of dirt on Wilkerson and turns it in. Most people don't know about it or they don't right. care about well, it. Well, Yeah, I don't think most people knew, mm-hmm. but... I'm sure some people who did would have voted for him anyway. Right. Yeah. So. Of course. And it's one of the the last elections in which women were not allowed to vote. And so the men from Montgomery County come out strongly for Wilkerson, uh, 987 voters who wrote in his name on the ballot for the position. And uh, Winston came in second with 790 votes. And Wilkerson even received enough write-in votes on Democratic ballots to win a nomination for that. And and you heard, well, and, and, you know, in the story, I mentioned that, that that was the sneaky thing they were doing mm-hmm. is people were taking Democratic, well, they were going in and doing, the, you know, a Chicago vote. 
I'm going to vote on the Republican ballot, but I'm going to come back and get a Democrat's ballot, too, and write him in on that also. So it's and then I'll put it in the name of my dead uncle, Mm -hmm. you know, and so you could get away with that kind of stuff. And that's that's what happened there. Got it. You know, fake votes. Why do they call that Chicago vote? Well, because Chicago had a very well still does, but has a very long history of illegal voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mob, you know, ran Chicago's voting for years and years and years. And, you know, it's become famous for voter fraud. And they talk about, um, you know, they had a lot of dead people who vote in Chicago elections sure. that went on for years, too. Uh, they were still registered. So people would use their votes so they could get whatever candidate that the, you know, organized crime promoted right. into office. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is, and this is a loose number, but when Chicago became a city, uh, when they were voted it into becoming a city, they needed, uh, and, and I, I'm off on the numbers, I can't remember exactly, but let's say they needed 100 votes. The problem was, is that there were only like 80 people living there. But for some reason, they got like 150 votes. <laughs> uh, that was Chicago's first case of voter fraud. Right. right? Um, years ago, we had, I I um, had been involved in a costume party in Chicago and we everybody came as their favorite Chicago ghost mm-hmm. or character from Chicago history. Sure. And so we had a lot of, you know different, you know, brides and Resurrection Mary and all this stuff. But a friend of mine uh, came and he was dressed in a suit and his face was all pale and black like a zombie, you know, would be. Yeah. And then he had a, a ballot sticking out of his pocket. Oh, he nice. came as a dead Chicago voter. Nice. So, yeah. So it, it's famous for that. But I know we're off track here, but um, that's kind of what it was going on here. Right. Is they were stuffing the ballot box in Wilkerson's favor. Right. Well, I'm glad we're past um, voter fraud. <laughs> yeah, like right that. now, so the Iowa—imagine the comments we'll get for that. Oh one. yeah, the great. Iowa yeah. Supreme Court moved forward to, uh, in the process to make a decision about Wilkerson's application, designating Oscar Winston as the commissioner yeah, to take the I position. I love that. Yeah, and I immediately wrote down. I was like, "Wait a minute, yeah, this seems like an odd choice." Yeah, and that's why I said that. I said, "I'm not sure you should have your political opponent right. be in charge of the investigation," but yeah. I think at this point, no one cared. It got sure. if it was going to get rid of Wilkerson, and so. I wonder if he was like if he was like super down for it or if he was like oh shit i already said i'm not really invested in <laughs> yeah, this right, and I now know. you're making me do more um so they havener who's uh, they have a hearing havener's at the hearing objects to nearly every question yeah that's Wilkerson, my favorite part and too, just starts doing story. a hand signal yeah he would just kind of signal the clerk to let them know that he had objected right. so he didn't have to stand up it's and like, say objection it's like when objection. you're at an, when you're at an auction and you just kind of yeah, like raise your same kind of thing know. these were just his objections to everything that was said that's so, amazing it's like know. on on uh the office where Dwight has like a standing meeting with Toby every Friday to <laughs> right, complain about Jim right, or something. Right, right. Uh, it's just understood. So, and then the clerk who had the paperwork said the box weighed 49 pounds. Oh, right. Yeah, that yes, was great. Yes. <laughs> I don't mean, he must have really thought this is crazy to have a box weighed, you know, know and then right. find out that it weighs 49 pounds. probably like, how heavy is this thing? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's probably wasn't an easy thing to do back no, then. No, I know? wouldn't think so. You do some work. Uh, so, it it all eventually unravels though when they find Wilkerson in a darkened hotel room with uh, May Knoll and they arrested him for adultery, which is a felony at the time, which, right. which he could face as much as three years in prison. Right? Didn't I didn't know this was a felony? Well, it was, it was at the time. Thing. I remember it's a hundred years ago, so right, there right, were a right. lot of different laws back then that there aren't now. Right. Um, I mean, although there are still like I don't know how many states in the country that you know sodomy is still a crime you know in, sure. in 2019 but uh, adultery was still a crime at the time and and a felony yeah and so they had tracked him to a hotel room where they heard 
squeaking bed springs, right. which which was um, no one actually saw anything, but they did hear it. Right. So and so one by one, Wilkerson supporters abandoned him, and I'm like, yeah. okay, so this was the thing. This that, was the thing. Well, finally- I think you know what it what it was is you know they they heard the story, the word spread, and you know here is Wilkerson who you know is. I mean, not ancient, but he's older. But I think the thing that bothered them the most wasn't so fat. The fact that May Knoll was in her 20s, I think what it was is that, you know, it was his, this guy who'd idolized him so much. Right. And now he's, you know, banging this guy's wife yeah. and he's not even cold yet. I mm-hmm. mean, this is not that long afterward. So how long that was going on, who's to say? You know, but now all of these rumors that have been going around about Wilkerson and, you know, he never struck me as much of a ladies man, but apparently he was because people had already been telling stories about, you know, good old Vena Tompkins yeah. and Alice Willard, who already had a bad reputation. And so they're thinking, well, you know, she's he's probably banging her, too. And, mm-hmm. and so now it's this one. And that I guess that that was just where it went over the line. And that's when they started to dump him. It's you know, crazy. they finally reached the breaking point. That's what it took. Right. So, and you know, they'd been sitting on this. Jones and Havner had been sitting on this information for a long time. Remember, Jones had tried to use it at that hearing. Right. Hey, I've got all this dirt. And his lawyer's like, hey, let's just not it's worry about that right yeah. now. Yeah. Right. But so he'd been sitting on it. And this is the stuff that, that, that Wilkerson was trying to get out of Frank's safe. Mm-hmm. This was yep. the information. This was all the dirt they had on him that he was trying to get. Right. So right. here it is. And so he files a, eventually files a $195,000 slander <laughs> lawsuit yeah. in early Which, September. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. I'm going to guess he went, well, that didn't really go that well for Frank Jones. So I think I'm going to pass on this one. Yes. So. Yeah. And yeah, name 33 men, uh-huh. essentially. Um, but like you said, like Frank Jones, it would buy a slander suit. It earned him nothing. He never filed the necessary papers and right. eventually was just dismissed. Um, this is a funny this little This little story. weird story. I know. Yeah. I had to include it just because... This is the last time these two ever met. Christmas and it's mirror. Just a weird story. I was actually thinking about this when we were downstairs and you're making jokes about Lisa's boot. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, was like, we're right. gonna talk about kicking yeah, people. Yeah, kicking people. Later. So yeah, so Frank and Wilkerson run into each other in Villisca on Christmas Day, nineteen eighteen. They argue and Jones kicks him in the leg. Yeah, I and I thought I don't know. I'm not sure how I felt about that. I tried to make it sound better than it was yeah. that instead of punching him or shooting him, he kicked him like a dog. But really, it just seems so. I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't know. weird. Yeah, it's, it's just, just weird. weird. You know, why would he just choose to kick him? I wonder. I, well, you know, I, like we've talked about it before. It's like Frank could have had Wilkerson killed if he wanted oh, yeah, to. Sure Maybe he, he was like so fed up and everything. And so he has all this rage and he's just like, I can't shoot you. Yeah. And he just, it comes out as a kick. And he just kicked him. Yeah, I mean, that's all know? I can think of too, is just this, this, he just boiled over to the There's point where he just, yeah. It's got to go somewhere. Yeah. It had to go somewhere. So he decided to kick him. I just thought it was so weird, but it's such an odd little story yeah. that it had to be included. It's so, kind of funny though. Yeah. Uh, the, so the adultery trial begins, <laughs> oh, uh, they begin their deliberations with about a 10 to two for acquittal. So we move 11 to one, got no further. But the story was great. You know, the, yeah. all this st- I mean, obviously they put the baby to sleep and they went in there and, and got, right. got to work. Right. They got busy and, you know, but then, you know, the story was as, Oh, he was rocking the baby. That's why the bed springs were of creaking course. and all this stuff. And so, I mean, the stories are weak, but I mean, seriously, this was a stupid thing for them to do. I, I mean, as it turned out, it worked, it got yeah. rid of him, but there was no, and that was enough. I mean, this was Havner, like I think I said, just kicking him when he was down sure. because the, the, there was no way to prove this. No one saw anything. And 
I think that this just made the jury uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole thing made them uncomfortable. The whole, the whole thing of him, you know, sleeping with May Knoll and all this. I think the whole thing made them uncomfortable and embarrassing. And they didn't want to talk about it anyway. And kind of, as I said, is you either, you know, you either commit adultery or you don't. Right. I mean, it's conspiracy not, this conspiracy commit, yeah. is a pretty weak charge. And I don't even know what it would have, it probably wouldn't even have earned him any jail time. Mm-hmm. You know, he just would have had a mark on his record, which right. I don't know. I, maybe that was at this point, Havner had tried everything else, yeah. but he kept him from being County attorney. He kept him from the bar. And now this was like the last humiliation for James Wilkerson, even though really he could have let this one go. Sure. Uh, but whatever. I mean, it, I could understand. He's like, you know what? If it's going to minorly inconvenience him. Yeah, I guess. Just, yeah, I guess. They're at that level. Yeah. Uh, so Wilkerson never returned to detective work. He apparently also <laughs> made no further attempts to run for office or practice law. Instead, he purchased part interest in the mummified <laughs> remains of an old man who purported to be the real John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we joined the circus. I mean, the, the carnival sideshow. Right. That was what he did for the rest of his life that's until so his weird. partner went bankrupt. And then he kept uh, that mummy sitting on his porch and people came to his house. They could pay him a dime to look at it. Yeah. It's so bizarre. I've been to the I've been to the place in Enid where that funeral parlor was. Oh, They've yeah. got a big display and stuff. It's a, it's an interesting story. Yeah. Um, if you if you believe in the if you love conspiracies and stuff, look it up. I've written about it in a couple of my books. Uh, my book about Abraham Lincoln, I write about the story, mm-hmm. um, not so much about Wilkerson, but about David St. George, who claimed to be John Wilkes Booth. And it's an interesting story. I mean, it's you look at it and you read it and you think, well, you know, I guess it's possible, unlikely, but possible because, yeah. you know, actually, as it turned out, no one ever actually, I mean, we're going to get off on, I don't want to get off on this tangent here, um, but tangent. no one actually ever identified the body of the John Wilkes Booth who was supposed to have been shot at that barn in Virginia. Mm-hmm. No one ever identified the body. They brought his brother there to do it. Uh, Edwin mm-hmm. Booth, they brought him there to identify the body and then he became too upset and couldn't do it. So no one ever actually identified it. And it was kept like in a underneath a floor in a building for a while. And there's it's a crazy story. Hmm. And so, you know, when you're looking at it's 1865, bad records, all kinds of stuff. You know, you have to look at the possibility of some of this stuff and say, who knows? You he know, maybe he today. could. No, no. But maybe he could have gotten away. Sure. Um, there were a couple of people who claimed to be him, but the story about David St. George is the most reliable. He, it's the brushy Bill Roberts story of Billy the Kid. Oh, it's right, the right, one right. guy who might have been telling the truth. Um, who knows? But so it's an interesting story. But the point is, is that James Wilkerson went from being this detective and running this case and everything to be in a, a carnival sideshow barker, right. essentially. Right. You know, so how much further could he have fallen? You know, so, well, eventually he had a stroke and he died. And um, that was, and he, he ended up, you know, dying with nothing. Yeah. You know, his wife was long gone by that time. Everything was gone. It was all over. And he'd never, I'm going to say that probably one of the biggest goals in his life had been to get Frank Jones. He spent years trying to do it and it didn't happen. Right. And I think that that probably was something that stuck with him to the day he died, I would imagine. So 
Well, I hope everybody's been having a good day until that depressing story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, it's all a little depressing here oh, at of the course, end. Of course. Nobody really comes out of this smelling like roses. No, I and, mean, and they just don't. There's one person that I think did, um, and that's Frank's daughter, but we'll, we'll yeah, get to that. Good point. Um, so just to wrap up some of the other players in this, Havner continued to have a distinguished career, essentially. Albert Jones has a bunch of strokes and dies on August 2nd, yeah. 1935. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, a shell of what he was. Right. You know. And Donna Jones later remarried and left Felisca for good. So yeah. maybe it ended well for her. I don't know. But yeah, still probably know. wasn't fun before that. No. But Frank's daughter, uh, Letha. Letha. Yeah. So she has a good life and here's yeah, a farm. Does. Lived off her teacher retirement and come in New York. She's like, I'll go visit in Velisca, but I'm not. I'm going not going to stay because I hate those people. Right, is and essentially what happened for so. her. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, these were people who believed in things about her father, who had, you know, again, and we could get into this and, and more, but I don't. I'm, I'm sure that if I had known him, I don't know if I'd have liked him that much, Frank Jones. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for one. Well, I mean, he was, I was going to say he was a Republican, but I'll just leave that alone. But um, he was, yeah, we'll just leave that alone. But he, um, you know, he was, he was an elitist in town. He was, you know, and so he didn't, you know, he was a banker and he, you know, he was tough on people that borrowed money and that kind of thing. So who knows? I mean, it's hard to say if I would have known him and liked him. I don't know, but I've sympathized for him, you know, through this entire story because I never really felt that he deserved what he got out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he ever did anything wrong. To the day he died, he insisted that he and J.B. Moore had never had a problem. You know, when he had gone out and done, it, done his own thing, he didn't hold that against him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a completely, and that's the thing that that wasn't taken into consideration. And we talked about it many, many episodes ago. Um, but, you know, he went in and got a John Deere dealership. Well, Frank Jones didn't sell John Deere stuff. I mean, that was a exclusive dealership he had. Yeah. So they were selling, you know, farm equipment, but it was a completely different animal. There was no reason they couldn't get along in a town that at that time had a decent sized population and could support more than one farm implement business. Mm-hmm. And he always said, we didn't have a problem. I always considered him to be my friend. And he, they, he had almost a kind of a father figure relationship with him. And, you know, all this, the rumors about JB having an affair with Dona and all this stuff. I mean, none of that was ever proven to be true. And there's nothing that has ever come to light that has said any of that. And I think he just got a bad rap. And I yeah. know I'm, I'm, this is probably the 10th time in all these episodes that I have spoken out to talk about how much I, I feel bad for Frank Jones, but I do, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, you know, luckily his life really didn't turn out that bad. You know, he continued, he'd retired by this time. He went back to work for the state. He was back on the state board of education for, you know, served, uh, somebody who had passed away to serve their spot and then got a six year appointment from the governor to serve more. Mm-hmm. So I, and you know, he died with a decent amount of money that he left to his daughter and but you know the stories never stopped yeah he continued to live in Velisca even though he had a lot of close friends and supporters in Velisca there were still the there were all of these people who still believe these stories always thought he got away with it you know and that's unfortunate it really is and you know and the rumors never stopped I mean when Albert died they said oh yeah Frank was only at his bedside to make sure he didn't confess to anything come on right you know, give the guy a break well, yeah. anyway, so that's my complaint about that. So <laughs> have you, know. you have you ever read any of those self-published memoirs? Or been able to no, I haven't those? seen them. Uh, I'm sure they're out there. Mm-hmm. I've never really read into them. Uh, if I had thought he'd gone into, you know, a deep thing about his, 
you know, role in it, but I'm sure he didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's anything he wanted to talk about. Right, right. And then uh, all of Frank's studies eventually donated to the library. Years later, a couple finds Albert's diaries in the attic and destroys them. Well, they read them. They read them and then destroyed them and just told everybody there was nothing relevant in them, Hopefully. which is weird. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. weird. What if they I mean, something? you know, yeah, I, I know. know it is it is kind of weird. But I had actually heard that story uh, around town mm-hmm. that they had done that and found them. So yeah. Yeah. the one thing that I do find interesting, not, I'm, I'm, I'm half joking here, but no problem with the person that's in recovery, sober, that sort of thing. But the person that says they've never taken a drink of liquor in their life, that's the person that weirds me out. Yeah, I know. I know this, Which this whole Frank thing said. about, yeah. And he didn't never use tobacco. And of course, I'm joking. Do what you got to do. But it's interesting that he, he brings that up and passes away in his sleep February 6, 1941. Um, and I wanted to read this quote that you put in here. It says, as with all the cities where the Axeman's murders took place, the people of Villisca were never given the justice they deserve. The hatred that was fostered by the dispute between the pro-Jones and anti-Jones factions split the town and it festered there for generations. Velisca even today has never gotten over it. Many of the residents would rather it was forgotten, but it refuses to go away. The murders still haunt the town in more ways than one, and it will always be that way for the simple reason that the killer, the Axeman, was never caught. So he just destroyed lives and yeah, just echoes absolutely. on. Absolutely. More so, more so in this case, and the reason that we spent so much time focusing on Velisca is the other towns where this stuff happened moved on. Mm-hmm. You know, um, sometimes the, it'll still pop up as a, you know, an, an oddity from the past. Um, but something about Velisca, for I think because of Wilkerson, I think if if Wilkerson had never been involved in this story at all, if he'd never been assigned to this case, that eventually it would have moved on and been an unsolved murder and it would have been a tragedy, but it wouldn't be something that would become this big of a deal. Sure. Uh, but for whatever reason, him going after Frank Jones and the way he split the entire region, not just Villisca, but, you know, Red Oak and all of Montgomery County, the way people divided on this, um, it just became a much bigger story than it was in all of the other places we talked about. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it just did. But as we'll talk about in our next episode, with all of the other murders that were taking place, you know, there were other people who believed they were connected mm-hmm. and didn't think they had anything to do with Frank Jones or Reverend Kelly or any of that. Yeah. Uh, but the characters involved in our, our story in Villisca made that town unique. It made that particular you know, series of murders in, in the midst of a bigger series of murders, it gave it so much more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's why we're still talking about it. Mm -hmm. Plus the ghost stories, right? You don't have those in the other towns. Mm -hmm. Um, they just have never materialized even with the, the buildings and not all of them are, most of them aren't, but a couple of the houses that are still standing, um, there are rumors of them being haunted. You know, that's why Velisca is different. It just is. Yeah. And we'll talk about more on the, yeah, the next episode. That, uh, yeah. Velisca, in my opinion, it's like, it might be hard to hear, but it's, it's not special. It was. A, it, is, it, was it, it wasn't. It was part of a series of murders, it but it became chaos, special because of the people involved. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if we hadn't had Frank Jones, if we hadn't had Wilkerson, if we hadn't had Kelly, right. you know, every other town had drama involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll remember in the, the Kansas episodes with the, the Hudson couple that were all these stories about love letters and her having all these affairs and stuff, but it never got into a big drama about who was involved in the actual murders. Mm-hmm. Not like Velisca did. Right. It just, it made the story different. Yep.
It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Our email today comes to us from Logan, and it's just titled An Idea, and I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit. Sure. But he says basically that he loves the show, it keeps getting better and better, um, said he would love to hear you talk more about uh, missing persons and things like that. Yeah, and yeah, I, and I think that we're we're flirting with that idea. It won't be the next season, but right. it is something that I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, I, totally. I, I've, I've really gotten sold on that, too. I like it. Cool. So, and he said he listens on Spotify, which is which is always cool. good to know. Um, and he, he kind of talks about the ending and how you interrupt me and we talk talk and do our little thing and he says basically his idea is you should just make like a shirt or something that says like I ignored Troy or like um, you know like something something about that and I don't it's not quite there but I like the idea and I might go you know, for I'm it. gonna get this I, this thing's gonna be rewritten shorter there's no way I can live through all we'll these for the next happens. season so uh, so thank you for writing in like I said yeah. American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com we also had another email I just want to address it really sure. quickly and not with any detail but we did have a uh, one of our listeners who got in touch with this because they were listening to another podcast and found um, an article that I had written um, recounted on that podcast word for word Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't credited. And um, as it turns out, there is apparently a big problem with this going on. I found out with some other true crime podcasts, some other people I know who do true crime um, also talked about the same problem that some of the new people that are starting out are going to the internet as sources and they're finding articles that myself and other people have written and they're using them for their stories. And um, I have no issue with that, as you know, um, if people credit where they got the story from. Sure. I don't care if you read it word for word, if you say that you got it from Troy Taylor's American Hauntings website. Um, and a lot of people are really great about that, and some aren't. Uh, but it has become an issue. So um, if that comes up, if you guys hear from that, and actually this listener who got in touch with me about it sort of took matters into their own hands and got a hold of the podcast and they eventually got back to him and, and apologized, not to me, but they apologized to him uh, for deleting his posts and things that he was asking about and um, did go back and re-record the ending for the podcast to give credit where they heard. So if you're finding that popping up somewhere, please let us know. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm all for people. I don't care if people use material. I mean, I've written a lot of books and I don't care when people use it as long as they put it in the bibliography or if they mention it in the podcast that that's where they got the story from. I'm totally cool with that. Um, but you know, if it does come up, if you run into something like that, please let us know. Um, we would like to know and, um, we'll, you know, address that if, if it comes up again. But anyway, so I just wanted to say thanks to him. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it or embarrass him or name his name or anything like that. But it was nice to know because Cody and I did look into it and it turned out to be legitimate. Yep. So yeah. yeah. Thank you again for that. Yeah. Uh, we now have some Patreon shout outs. So if you want to get more out of the show, get uh, bonus episodes on the off weeks or. Join oh, and Facebook actually, group. we want to say thanks because and you're not going to hear it yet. But when we start season four, mm-hmm. uh, you will notice a big difference because we have already invested in a bunch of new equipment. We're going to start using for season four. And you can if you're one of those people who have ever written a review and said, well, the audio is not great. Um, you can thank patreon people for the fact that we're going to have brand new equipment for season four uh so anyway with that said here's a shout out yep here's here's some of the shout outs so thank you to matthew levi uh tobias and emily alex rose elizabeth and aaron 
So thank you so much. You uh, help help make all this possible, and we really, really appreciate it. So if you want to check out what other things are available there, you can go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Okay, well, I think we should probably wrap things up for this episode. It was long enough already. There's no sense in us making it any longer. So thanks to everyone who listened. Um, please uh, share the podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes so uh, we'll have something to read in our review section in the future. No, really, I always, we love to find the reviews. Um, they're always fun when they pop up. And uh, even if they're, you know, I mean, hopefully they'll all be good. But even if they're not, they're still pretty fun. Um, so thanks to everybody for doing that. And I think I'm just going to take care of the ending this time. Uh, and so Cody doesn't have to. So I'll just tell you that um, it was uh, this episode was was written by me and it was produced and edited by Cody Beck. So I think that's it. In so each we will episode, talk- we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination and the truth to reveal more about America's most you know, haunted he places, just does this. strange tales, he just and like edits me out. American Hollings so- is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. So please tune in to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to Troy's books and information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show... And who doesn't? Does, Let's be honest. Right? Who doesn't love American the show? American Hauntings is more I just than hate this podcast. This is the part it's I don't books, like. books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of the people who wish we had new shows every week week or that they sounded better well you can have that you have the chance to support the podcast well, by checking will. out our patreon page as a supporter you get bonus episodes of the show t-shirts great stuff in the mail and more we're extremely excited Which about producing more shows with better equipment yep in the mail and with your help we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen take a minute and check it out we think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash american hauntings you can also find your hosts on twitter instagram and facebook and if you have comments suggestions reviews or jokes be sure to pass them along Until next time, goodbye. Bye, so long, and see you later. See you later. Cool. That was nice. That was fun. That was really good.